0: Hey now, you're an all star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on, get paid. And all that is gold. Only shooting stars
1: break the mold. Welcome to another episode of the NRL All Stars podcast. This is Barnsey back for the weekly talk and footy episode, episode twenty nine of the talk and footy series this year, and NRL All Stars podcast has always done a lot of super coach content but I've really enjoyed the talking footy over the last year um, and now we've got a couple left it is grand final week basically rugby league fans Christmas week and it's all going to be over after Sunday but we are going to have one more podcast the week after to review the grand final uh, have a look at the season uh, and a, a little bit of an off season but um, yeah it's It's going to be a banger of an episode looking at this grand final because I think it's going to be absolutely fantastic. The Battle of the West with the Eels and the Panthers. Cannot wait. We've got a fan favourite on, prominent jersey collector, Newcastle Knights fan who's now converted to the women's game, (laughs) Luke Garrity. Welcome back,
0: mate. Thanks, mate. You forgot to leave out Eel hater, but um, we can, I'm sure you'll get, get into me about that. Oh, we'll Thanks, get into uh... Eel hater. Don't worry about that. I did <laughs> also to forget
1: about... to leave. Uh, I forgot to leave out that you are also the co-host of the Rugby League Cemetery podcast, one of the other great rugby league podcasts that
0: everybody can hit up as well. Thanks, mate. Yeah, no, it's, it's good to be on. I, I didn't try that hard to dodge it when you hit me up, despite uh, me absolutely panning the Eels a few weeks ago. So I've come here and fronted up and ready to uh, face the music from Eels listeners. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Fair bit of music to to face, mate. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's gonna be um it's gonna be interesting to see your takes now and sort of how mm. they've changed. Uh, I think first of all, what we're going to do is review last round of the finals. Now, it was an entertaining round. Uh, I certainly think that first game was exceptionally close footy, twenty four twenty, and it was one that obviously the Eels won, but not without some controversy, which we'll get to in a minute, but. I felt a little bit bad for the Eels in a way uh, because I I sort of thought that because of some of the calls and things that we're going to talk about, and and obviously I think a lot of people were on the Cowboys as well, I think they didn't get the credit they deserved. So I thought they thoroughly deserved the win. The last 25 minutes, uh, the game was well and truly there for the taking for either side. And certainly the Cowboys were up and had a lead with 25 to go that was pretty good. Uh, and really, a lot of teams that deserve to be in the grand final would have gotten through and, and held on to that lead. So I do think that you thoroughly deserved it because that last 25, they had Regan Campbell-Gillard crash over for a great second try in the 58th minute and then Mike Acevo iced it in the 64th. And then the last 10 minutes, they really withstood the, the Cowboys' barrage that you knew was going to happen because obviously they were desperate for points and to try and get in that grand final. So I don't want to take anything away from the Cowboys. They've had a phenomenal season and look, they could have finished eighth and everybody would have said, wow, the Cowboys have really improved, give them some credit. So to be one game away from a grand final, you know, they've done well anyway. And they certainly, you know, didn't get flogged. It was 24 20 and they were riding that match to win it. But I was really impressed by the Eels. And I did think that that was, the Eels side that I thought was going to happen. I know that a few weeks ago you were pretty against them, Mm. whereas I was pretty positive about the Eels because I just thought that they had the personnel and the game that really suited their matchups in this final series where obviously if they didn't fall in a heap, which they can do, they were going to be able to beat teams and get to a grand final. Now, I thought they did that and more against the Cowboys and I thought they were really, really impressive.
0: Yeah, that's a fair enough take. Um, it's funny, once they lost to Penrith, their jaw really did open up. Like they got, they got games that looked more winnable almost than might have happened if they'd actually beaten Penrith and <laughs> ended up playing South. But um, I think my, my thing about Parramatta is that I think what I said to you mid season when I canned them the first time and I repeated it at the start of the finals was never that they don't have the ability, it was that. I just didn't want to hear in the middle of the year that they were going well or getting to the finals they were going well because the point was they always bottle it in the finals and, and I wasn't going to believe it. Until I saw something different because it's not been once it's been year after year, um, so I give them really big credit because this is a game that was set up for them to lose in the last 20 minutes. Um, that that's where they deserve the credit. Is I actually don't think they played that well for a large part of that game. That they were made the first half important. an hour, I didn't like yep. it.
1: So I, I probably sounded like yep. I, I thought they did phenomenal the whole game. But oh, yep. I thought they did phenomenal just to close it out in that
0: last. That, third that's of right. Them. And well, that's right. And the thing is, um, I, I'm not really criticising them. I, I didn't think they played well at all in the first half. And I went to halftime thinking that the flow of the game suggested the Cowboys should be a lot more and further in front, and that. They should go on with it based on what, what we'd seen. And that to me is where Parramatta deserve the credit because um, they don't win games like that. That's been the problem the whole time. Like Mo- Mitchell Moses actually did get ropey. Um, I mentioned that I think they they panic in finals and lose their heads, and they actually did. Mo- Moses, I've never seen him kick like he did in that game with two out in the two, full. And two five out in the full, yeah. He, he actually didn't play well at all. And they had what I would consider to be a really bad 40 minutes of football, making mistakes, kicking badly. And that's happened to them a lot in finals. And what usually happens is here we go again and it all collapses. Um, the famous one was a couple of years ago, Moses hit the post against South with a really easy penalty mm. in a tight game. And then South run 60 meters and then it's just overflow from there. They just get, get walloped. And usually when this stuff happens, para go to bits. And in this game, they actually managed to win the game by just not going up falling apart. When well, Moses missed a wrong, kick in
1: this one too, but they ended did, up getting it back
0: and they one. ended up scoring a try out of it. That's right. That was a piece of luck, I must say. I was watching that and I thought, oh, God, because I, I knew I was going to cop it if they won. And I was like, he's missed a goal and they've ended up scoring. <laughs> like, but, but again, <laughs> they, they sort of did this stuff wrong and usually they fall apart. And other teams do stuff wrong. I mean, Nathan Cleary hits kicks. Penrith make mistakes. but And they have bad halves. In fact, they had a bad 35 minutes in a game we'll talk about in a moment. But good teams bounce back and Parramatta have never really done that and they did in this game so I agree with you they deserve a lot of credit because they did the thing I didn't really think they'd do which is to withstand things going wrong mm. um and you know you need a bit of luck like it's, it's easy and we'll talk about the Cowboys in a moment but it's easy to talk about needing luck oh, sorry they got a bit of luck with the football but you do need luck to make a grand final once you get to the final games you're going to play very good teams in the last couple of weeks of the com. and you know Everyone who's ever won a comp, you could probably point to a couple of calls in the grand final or the prelim or whatever, where, you know, you need the rub to go your way. And another year it doesn't. Last year, they had really bad luck, actually. against The, the best final I've ever seen in play was against uh, Penrith last year. Um, and they really didn't get much luck from the referee there. Yeah. Um, and and there, there's and always happens, going to be you know? a couple. Yeah. You're it,
1: always going to have some calls. And we're going to go close into A right? couple of things. Yeah, yeah. that's right. We're <laughs> going to go into those couple of calls in a minute. Mm. I do want to um, touch on what you just mentioned, though, about um, why they deserve credit because they've overcome it when really they look mm. poor for the first 40 and, and the Cowboys are on top. You know, that's why I think it was so impressive as well. And when yeah. you read out the numbers, like, you can look at these two ways. You, you know, I'm sure some Parramatta haters that, you know, I think you're the captain of the fan club from last time <laughs> I looked, um, would go, oh, those numbers look shocking. You know, but when it's a team that has those numbers and has won a a finals match to get into the grand final, that becomes really impressive because you've done it in pretty tough circumstances. They had 46% possession, the Eels, uh, at a 75% um, completion rate, which is very average. It's not terrible, but it's pretty average. But what it meant was they had seven less sets than what the Cowboys did. And that's why I thought they kind of did some things well in the first half. Like with the ball, they didn't do a good job at all. But by all accounts and by the numbers, the Cowboys should have had more points on the board and they just didn't do it. And it's why I think that the Eagles deserve to win too, because when the game is on the line and when they had the possession and when they were firing, they they put the points on the board and they took the opportunity. And all the it's a little bit of a cliche, but all the rugby league greats and commentators and everyone, they always talk about owning the moments and stuff. And it is true. I, I need to coin a different phrase. I'm not copying the cliches. But when, when you've got those moments or opportunities, you need to make the most of them and take them. And I thought Parramatta did that, whereas yeah. the Cowboys just didn't, because if they did do it, they would have been up by, you know, 16 and a half or something, and they just weren't. And the rest of the numbers, it all shows that as well. Um, like, I mean, I, I was very much on Parramatta potentially as the best forward pack in the competition. You know, the run meters, they they lost to the Cowboys. And it was only barely, it was pretty close, um, but still the Cowboys managed to get over the top. And certainly that first half an hour of football, the run meters for the Cows were, were out of control. Um, so that was Ooh. something else as well. The kicking game you mentioned, you know, kicking out a couple of times on the full doesn't happen. They missed more tackles, 40 missed tackles to the Cowboys 31. They had 11 errors to the Cowboys 6. They conceded seven penalties to the Cowboys 5 conceded. You look at all the numbers, and if you didn't know the result of the game, you'd look at the numbers and say the the Cowboys won that match. You know, but they didn't. And it wasn't because that the Cowboys were darted. It was because the Cowboys didn't take the opportunities. They didn't own the moments. And the Eels did. And when the game was there to win in that last 25 minutes, the Eels really stood up and played really good quality football. So yeah. I, I think that's kind of expanded on, on your point anyway and what you sort of thought about it. But I just think when you actually look at numbers in some games, it can be pretty startling.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, that That's the thing for me is people talk about good para and bad para. Um, but other teams have good and bad days. The, 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 thing, the reason we talk about good and bad para is bad para just collapses. That's what When they play a half like they did there, they've traditionally got beat by 30 by the Bulldogs and stuff, which has happened this year. Um, that's what tends to happen to them when they have their off day, whereas teams like Penrith um, and the past Melbourne Storm, uh, not so much this year but other years, just managed to either win or, or, or scrape around and keep themselves in the game until they start playing better. Um, because not every you just don't play at your best football every week, even in a final series you don't and Penrith are a great example last year I actually thought that the football they played in the finals last year was the least. entertaining and probably the least crisp they've looked over the last three years of their dominance, but they. They've have a floor and find a way to stay in games until it till it works. And Parramatta haven't really done that, and they did. So that that's a really big step for them and and for Moses. Um, on on the Cowboys, I think the only thing I want to say about them is that I had a, I was very conflicted in this game because Parramatta I, I didn't really want anyone to win because Parramatta I was going to get hammered on here um <laughs> I, I am a closet Mitchell Moses fan so I thought the upside is that I wouldn't mind seeing Moses make grand final because I hate how much he gets criticized because I really do think he's a good player um but I knew I'd get hammered if, if they won but the Cowboys I'm, I'm this really anti I'm a really anti Chad Townsend guy like I don't think he's that good um it's been a really hard year for me and I didn't know if I could cope with Townsend mania if I think I'm a founding member of that fan um, club yeah, as well mate so and, that's fine. And, um, To If I can, you know, I'm going to get myself hammered for what I've said about Parramatta. So I might as well just double down um, on something else and say, I think next year will be very interesting for the Cowboys. I I think when you look at their squad, no one expected them to go this well. Um, I think that if you look across the spine, there's Drinkwater has had an outstanding year, but hasn't had a lot of other years where he's played that well. Townsend has had a long career of being uh, good enough to be in first grade, but not. I wouldn't say above average. I would say that he's always been good enough to be there. Um, Dearden's a young man who looks like he's got some go in him, but he's young and hasn't looked particularly good before. And Robson's had a career year. So I look through their side and I think that, whilst they can obviously go well again there is a reasonable risk they could become one of the sides that makes a run to the prelim and could miss the finals the next year i think it happens a lot that the titans early in their career had a run to a prelim and didn't make the finals Um, It's happened to the knights um under wayne bennett it's not actually that unusual and i won't go so far as to say it's definitely going to happen but it's a really big watch for them because they've played outstanding football this year but if you go point by point through the roster how highly are you ranking the players in key positions? They're still like, I thought they were so they played to their as good as they could possibly play this year. Over the course of the season, fell a bit short in the finals, and I'll be really interested to see if they can maintain that. And I think there's a reasonable risk that could be one of those teams that aren't anywhere near where they were this year.
1: I'll, I'll triple down and yeah. be super controversial. I'm going to give them mm. zero chance of making the top four next year. Zero. I think there's no way it's going to happen. And it's going to be looked at as a, you know, where they go to from here for a Mm -hmm. lot of fans, what you'll see this game, you know, they were one game, one win off a grand final and think, you know, they're going to build on that next year. I think that's kind of unfair. So some people will think that I'm hammering them or I'm I'm being unfair, but I I don't think so because when a team crazily overachieves, sometimes it's a bit of an outlier and the truth
0: is somewhere in the middle there. It gets the same momentum, doesn't it? Like they just started playing so well. And sometimes you can't stop playing well when that happens. Um, And I feel like they all peaked, right? Like Mm. all these guys played their best football, but, but, you know, there's there's a lot of guys in there that if they play 80% as well as they can, the the flaw's not there that some of the other teams have. I I just still don't think the roster, I, I hope I'm wrong. I've enjoyed watching them, but it just, it strikes me. You sometimes can pick it. And sometimes you, you don't. I mean, I mean, going to this year, everyone thought the Titans would build on coming seventh, right? And yeah. we're going to make a run up to the top. And plenty of people thought that, and and they nearly came last. And and I'm not. The, the, they've had a better year than the Titans did last year, but it's similar in that you get this really sparky attacking football where everything just works. And it, it's, it's not. It's they not, also had a pretty yeah. good draw
1: too. And and I always it, it kind of upsets me as a Cronulla local that mm. um. Yeah, but the Cronulla Sharks have copped a lot of bad raps in this off season. um, For them, or it's off season for them that they've just gone out in straight sets and they, you know, they were never really that good. They finished second, but then people respond with, "Oh, yeah, but they had an easy draw and things went their way." And all that. Yeah, but you know, I love how the Sharks get that, but nobody says it about the Cowboys. Like the Cowboys also had a really favourable draw during the year. Um, Now, I wouldn't pin too much on that. Like maybe instead of fourth. They finished seventh and it's still a really good year, you know? So I think that's the thing, expectations. I think they've set the expectations quite high Mm. where I think where to from here for them after this loss to Parramatta is the danger is that they go into next year and they get disappointed with not having that same success, especially straight away. Uh, Fans and the media start to turn on that and it becomes a bit of a narrative. And Mm. Todd Payton, He's currently the M Coach of the Year, which we're going to talk about a bit later too. We've We've seen some real spotty stuff from him in the past. That will be a challenge for him, how to handle that. It's almost going to be more of a challenge for Todd Payton to me, how he handles next year. Because, you know, he got the success this year with no expectations. Next year, he's got the expectations. There could be some controversy and disappointment. How's he going to handle and navigate that to still have a successful finals campaign? I think that there's a lot of... A lot of risks there for the cows. Mm. And I also agree with your spine comments. I actually think Robson will keep going. I think he's young enough and a good enough player. Mm. And I've always really liked him. I think Drinkwater will too. But I don't know if Drinkwater will still have the type of runs that he had this year. He might just be good rather than very mm. good. And I think yeah. that's fair. And But the halves is where I agree with you 100%. You know, there is... There is a very, very good chance that the Dearden and Townsend as a hard combination. I'm not going to say crash and burn, but could go quite poorly compared to this year. And if that happens with the rest of your roster, like you've mentioned, uh, that could be a real problem.
0: Yeah, it, it could be. And I don't, I don't want to doomsday them. I, it's perfectly possible they they play well because they've shown they can play well. So you can do it. Um, and Dearden's been really good. This year, um, it's just that it, it's they don't have that level. When you look at when you look at what they've done in the game, they just don't have that sort of long history of doing it like some of the other teams do. You go into a season, even to use Parramatta as an example, I might have thought they'd burn in the finals, but by having Moses and having Gutherson and having some of those forwards, you sort of just know they weren't going to come tenth, right? Like it, you know, like they're going to come second in a good year and sixth in a bad year because of the floor of those level of players. They're just going to beat enough teams over the course of the season to be at a certain level. Um, and and even a side like Melbourne this year, who fell out of that top part, they just have enough play. You just know with, with Munster and Hughes and, and Pappenhausen and all those guys that if they're playing, they're just going to get a certain amount of wins over the year because of how good they've been that good over five years. They don't fall below a level. And we, these, in five years, we might talk about some of these guys like that, but not yet. We just don't know. There's plenty of young guys, um, like literally, we could name thousands that have an outstanding year. And then you go, oh, where'd that go? Um, yeah. And we could get that with a drinky. I hope we don't. I love watching him play. We, we could get that with a deed. And, you know, I mean, think about Ash. Taylor's um, first season up at the Titans and think of Chris Sando when he came through at Souths. Rookie of you the know, Tim um, Smith at Parramatta. Tim Smith. Like, yeah. And th- these are huge examples. I mean, Kane Elgey was outstanding and got a huge deal the year before Ash Taylor and that they had two in a row that didn't kick on. And um, that's not, uh, you know, Deirdre played really well in an origin decider. So I- I'd hope I'm not disrespecting him with that. I, I just mean that you, you get, and um, it applies to other positions like Nani as well is that really, Young players can really have a good season and struggle to back it up. Uh, Bradman Best at Newcastle has really struggled for the last couple of years. It, it just happens. And it's a big watch for me. They're a, real, they're a team that I just don't feel comfortable slotting in up the top next year. And I hope I'm wrong because I really enjoyed the way they played. I thought they were really attacking and aggressive. And mm. to go to your point, finally, I think a really big thing for them is if they come out and throw the ball around and it doesn't go well for a couple of weeks, they've got to really hold their nerve. A really big mistake would be to lose a couple of games and panic um, rather than, you know, that they could really easily lose that confidence to play with that freedom they played with this year if it stops working. And sometimes um, East are a good example. They have days where it doesn't work, but they just sort of stick to it and it comes good. And they probably need to adopt that sort of attitude. They You can't come out and lose the first two and all of a sudden start panicking
1: yeah and i know it sounds like that we're being really down on the cowboys and I, I don't think me or luke really are you know at the end of the day they've overachieved and, and well done to them and mm-hmm. i think i'll probably be misconstrued and to try and put it in perspective you know i said that there's no way they make top four i could very much see them as you know making you being the eighth side next year or something like mm-hmm. that and a lot of people will say oh that's really poor i actually think that'd be a really good result like mm-hmm. if they can back up uh, with another top eight season and being the finals next year. I'd actually say they've done well. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's a bad season for them, but it's still that, yep. that bit of a drop off from where they got to this year. I would totally. be happy with that as a Cowboys fan next year, if you made the eight again, and that's yeah. what I'd be aiming for. And I think it would be good because it puts you in the mix for it again. And it proves that you didn't, you know, you don't want to be doing a Titans like Luke said, um, you know, you can fall and still have a, a successful enough campaign, which would be to make yeah. the eight and have a go when you hit the finals. And I think that that's probably where I see the Cowboys hitting next year. And I don't think that's any disrespect to them. I just I, I just think that they've overachieved this year, that's all. And it was just one of those pleasant surprises.
0: Yeah, and I think for me is that if they'll – I'm not necessarily tipping they'll miss the eight, but if I had to tip a team in the eight to miss out, they would they would genuinely – I would have them equal money with Canberra as the favourite. Like If you said mm. you have to put money on someone to miss the eight, I would take them. I think they're about an equal chance with Canberra, but I'd get better odds on the cows. So I'd put it on. I'd put it on them. I, the others, I think, I'm confident will remain the good sides. Yes, yeah. that's right. I'd be surprised if any of those six drop out. Um, but I could say I just won't be surprised next year if they don't um, make well, it. So let's talk you know.
1: about some of the plays in this one. Through a bit of a yep. positive, um, I I thought Nanai was outstanding again. Um, yeah, he, was. he did some really good stuff, and you have to consider too that when you're looking at the numbers, you know, he's 19 in his first full season in first grade. Uh, Had two offloads, three tackle breaks. Uh, Only had the one error. And that's one of the things that kind of went missing when people were critiquing his year. A lot of his issues, especially in the first half of the season, were he had all these games where he'd get two penalties and three errors. And it was just, that's not good enough at NRL level. Um, He didn't have that lately. Mm. And he certainly didn't have it in the finals, which is really good. I I thought he was pretty impressive. Um, I actually thought that, it's a bit of a mixed bag for Luciano Le Lua, but he did offer them some punch that I think mm. they needed because one of the big things with him is, um, well, with the Cowboys is oh, I thought that they weren't going to be able to win these games because I didn't think they had another gear. I didn't think they mm. could have those X-factor moments and stuff. And he had that line break try. He had the five tackle breaks. I thought Drinkwater uh, tried. You know, he still managed to manufacture a line break and, and look a bit dangerous a few times when he really put his head down and really went for it. Um, and obviously someone like Cotter has just cemented himself as one of these great up and coming workhorses mm. for the next decade in how he's actually playing footy. So they had some real good bright spots. Um, Val Holmes had his moments too, setting up a good try for Talani. Uh Reece Robson did what Robson's been doing. Um, it's... There was definitely some bright spots there. And certainly their pack as well probably overachieved this game when I mentioned the meters, you yeah. know, and someone like Jason tomalolo it, it was such a funny season for him because so many times people were writing off Jason tomalolo's career because his minutes kept going up and down and then he wasn't really getting that involved. But then he'd have these games in the finals where he plays the big minutes and it was 64 minutes for him. And he looked really good. And when he came back on from that sin bin, he just he made a couple of big runs that were really massive, denting the defensive line, big meters, and a couple of big hits as well. And he was I'm not gonna say back to the Tomalolo at his peak, but he certainly proved that he's still got a lot to offer them again. So I thought they had
0: some real good shining lights there. I reckon he was back to his peak. I've watched that game and I remi- it reminded me, it's been a couple of years and I looked mm. at it and I was like, I remember why I was starting to think he is the best middle forward I've ever actually watched as a ball runner. Um, I, I don't think I've ever seen someone run the ball. If you know, There's defence and other parts to the game and intimidating and whatever, but as a ball runner, I think he's the best middle forward I've ever seen and I'd kind of forgotten because he has eased up. Um, I thought he was rampant. I thought, he ran a, He hurt um, Papa Lehi a few times. Not not when he they had a bit of a running battle yeah, the first years. It was really good and it was great. I remember looking at it and going, "This is the difference." Like Papa Lihi is a very good, very very good rep level forward and I was like this is the difference between a great of all time in his position and a very good hard player because he was getting (laughs) mixed, like he got absolutely (laughs) rattled a few times and I thought oh he's he's not rattling halfbacks he's not rattling a weak forward he's rattling one of the better players big hard power forwards in the game and I I thought he was incredible um I I think he was the pick of them for the Cowboys by far um the only thing i say with Nanai is I've been pretty critical of his defense in the past. And I thought he was really good with the ball, really dangerous. But I don't think you can go past the fact that I think he's had his issues in defense, his issues with reading and being out of position. And his opponent had the best game, which I'm sure we're going to get to, that I've ever seen him play in Sean Lane. And if you're an edge forward and your opposing edge forward plays that well, it's just probably a little bit of a mark you have to mention. You know, In a key game, whether he missed him one-on-one or not, the fact is, Lane was getting through and having a huge impact when when he was supposed to be marked by him. Um, and it's probably just something that's got to be mentioned, not as a huge negative. He's nineteen, had a great game, great season. But you know, if you're coaching him and you're talking about next year, you have got to be like, hey, mate. You know, in these sorts of games, you've you've got to control your mm. opponent. You can't have your opposing player have a game like that. It's not. It's not even you know. It's not an all-time great of the position. Sean Lane had a great game, but you've got to be able to handle guys like him.
1: Well, we got to we got to talk yeah. about the Eels. Players that really stood up and and lanes at the top of the list because I have to say, like, my favorite players this year
0: Mm.
1: are Nico Hines and Sean Lane. Like, Sean Lane, I am absolutely in love with this year as a player. I just love everything about his game, how he plays, his attitude this year. And I'm someone who was a really big fan of him coming through you know, this real big, lanky middle forward that can play edge six foot six or whatever he is and such he a just, weird shape yeah he had these <laughs> offloads and yeah. he had this skill level but he was also had the size it was really hard to stop and i just loved mm. i loved that prototype of player the build the player that he was when he was coming through and when he started with the bulldogs he looked really exciting and i was really excited for his career and i was saying to a mate of mine that was a bulldogs fan you should lock him up for the next five years quickly yeah. and then all of a sudden you know you get um, inklings of attitude issues. You can see that he's a bit lazy. You can see that he's not a big trainer, and you just go. Oh, I hope this guy's not going to end up on the scrap heap. And you kind of thought oh, he's he was almost going to, and then he sort of had you know, had a really bad year in the Warriors system where he had to leave. He ended up finding his feet at Manly again, but he still wasn't. You still knew that he wasn't at his potential. And at Parra, he's shown glimpses. This year, he has hit his potential. Now it might be late, but I would argue he's he's got an argument this year to be the best edge back rower in the game this season, and I thought that he just showed that like in a game to get to the grand final, the Eels don't win that game without Sean Lane. I don't think he had 14 runs of the footy, four offloads, five tackle breaks, a line break try assist. It was absolutely outstanding the pass that he threw, and he just he he was just out there as a match winner. On that, on that edge. And, again, I, I that pass, I will remember that pass forever to get Parramatta across the line to a grand final. That went a long way. I, just, I cannot give Sean Lane enough accolades for this year. I, I just thought he was outstanding. And in that game, it was probably the best game of the season, and that really punctuates what a great player he's been this year when a player can step up like that and have that type of game when it's to get your team into a grand final.
0: Yeah, it's the best game he's ever played, and it's one of the best games I've seen from a forward in a final, seriously, um, particularly an edge forward, because you don't have, you can have middle forwards that just make a, mon, you know, you can have a Burgess or a Cal kind of guy just make a monumental amount of hard carries in the middle, it's a bit harder on the edge, because you're never going to have, you know, the same amount of carries. To have that level of influence as an edge forward um, was as good a final as I've seen someone someone play. Uh, particularly as it wasn't cheap stuff. He didn't just score three tries running off someone in a hole or something. He made hard runs and, uh, and saved them in hard situations quite a few times and manufactured things himself. Um, I, I think what's interesting about him is I, I know you mentioned his attitude when he was younger, and, and I was going to say that as a qualifier to what I'm about to say, but um, I get that there was some of that coming through, but he's a really good example of how – Coaches are impatient and also a little bit quick to just say, "Nah, he doesn't have it or he doesn't have what we need." If you look at his career, I agree with you. I looked at the Bulldogs and thought, "God, he can play! Like he's going to make it! Like in no trouble." And then all of a sudden, he was out of there, and he was at the Warriors. They only played him once. Like they went to the trouble to do a swap deal to get him there um and and to play regular first grade, and and he was just never picked uh, at all. And then he goes to Manly. And he's used as a bench forward and he he couldn't get a job on the edge for Manly. Like Frank Winterstein got picked over him um, and he barely ever played on the edge out there. And he always struck me as an edge forward. So he went through his career where the Bulldogs were like, nah, too much hassle. The Warriors didn't even try him. And I can assure you, they've got plenty of other players who were lazy trainers. They could have fitted him in there somewhere. Um, And and Manly played him as this bench middle behind guys like Winterstein who are, you know, like really, really below the level and and Parramatta snapped him up and have just been like what they've given him is consistent football over a period of time and it's the first time he's had he's been in and out a little bit but he's consistently always been in the team he's consistently had a role on the edge um over a couple of year period now and he's really blossomed and, and sometimes you do need a little bit of patience you need to work with the guy and help him with the attitude stuff and to um let just give him the time in first grade to to grow and it's different if you've got a complete tosser who's, who's completely unable unable to handle but sometimes when guys have got ability it just takes time and the eagles are getting the reward for being patient with him and having him for a few years and, and working mm. on all that and uh, coaches could learn from that i think we're very quick to toss out 21 or 22 year olds for not much you know it's it's there's some guys who do some shocking stuff but Oh, he's not quite training to the level or anything, and they're out the door. You can work with guys on that, and you need to give them consistent time in first grade if you want them to play their best. And not enough people do that anymore.
1: It's percent. You're, you're in and
0: out. You're in for a year, and oh no, he's not quite getting it done. He's missing these tackles. He's tired late in the game. Done out. We'll and lanes coming in. through late too, yeah.
1: and and people will just mm. give up based on the the number that his yeah. age as well. And yeah. People can blossom and, and be better later <laughs> on. It needs to be said in this game too, Madison had very similar numbers but didn't get anywhere near the, rep, the, the props that he deserved. He had 19 runs with 39 tackles, but also three offloads and a line break try assist and he did it all in 59 minutes. So he was outstanding. And interestingly, Papa Lee wasn't far behind and there 11, 12 and 13 all had a try assist each. Um, but they're, they're two other props. You know, I have to give them credit. Paulo Barlow has been one of the, I guess, disappointing guys this year because I thought he was really going to step up. And he sort of, especially the first half of the season, he, he just wasn't. But this final series, he's really stood up and they're giving him bigger minutes and he was really good. Um, and even just, you know, could, again, they lost some metres, but he he was trying his best and he ended up running for 150 metres. Um, but Regan Campbell-Gillard, you know, when you talk about career games... He, he he scored one trial a year and he scored two tries in this game to get him into a grand final. And both of them, he earned himself. Like that second try, he's just gone full steam ahead, gotten the big Paul Harrigan chief run up and just gone, I'm just going to run through this line. I don't care if it's a brick wall of seven people. Ended up being two guys that didn't really put there, that just got like pinballed out of the way. But he, he was just outstanding. Two line breaks, two tries, offload. Line break assist with that offload as well. Um, And he just did everything that he needed to, um, you know, when you're looking at his run meters, he had 150 run meters as well. So I I thought those guys were great for power. And to finish off, I I think that um, people will look at Gutherson's numbers and say, and not really put him in the category of of one of their important players. Just watching the game though, I, I thought Gutherson really led them well. Like we talk about a couple of weeks ago when they lost to to Penrith in week one of the finals, and he had seven runs. He had 20 runs of the football and you know had, had just the, you know a line break, but he had five tackle breaks and he was making metres. And I think one of the things with him was he had no errors, he had no penalties, and I just sort of saw not an evolution of him, but I think what the great players do, and you see this with James Tedesco a lot in these type of games, when the attack sort of tightens up and the, the flashy plays aren't there and the cutout balls to SIBO aren't there, there's the guys that are stars that, that don't really do anything and you don't notice them. And then there's the guys that, that decide, okay, well, I'm not going to be able to win or impact the game that way. And I saw that from Gutherson because he just kept taking all these hit-ups and they were really good hit-ups where he was making good meters, he was running hard and he was really trying to push and lead the team. And I think that makes a real big difference. So he's one of the guys that didn't have the stats of the
0: other guys, but I thought that he played really well. Yeah, he did, and to be honest, um, I'm I'm not Gutho's biggest fan, but I I think it, it's only because I think he gets pumped up into superstar category. If he wasn't quite as big a media personality and stuff, I would probably think he was really good because he works so hard. Is <laughs> um, a really tough player, but what I was going to say about him is that um, in a perverse way. It, stats aren't a good way to look at him because it, they've been in past years, Dylan Brown was doing so little that Gutho had a lot of try assists, a lot of line break assists and did a lot of the ball playing. And they are a much better side with Brown playing they, the way he is now, but that means Gutho gets less ball and he needs to do so, like less attacking ball and needs to do more of that other stuff to influence the game. And that's not a bad thing that you don't need Gutho having 20 strike attacking plays a game. It's fine for it to be five to 10, where he gets it as a threat and the other times Brown's got it and Gutho somewhere else just holding defence up because they know he can get it. All, all of that is perfectly fine. And, and you know, that's why a, a team with one really key out, attacking outlet often gets the most tries assist for the year. Uh, a lot of the time, um, you know, I've seen seasons where it's someone who doesn't have much help do that, but that's not necessarily good for the team. And Parramatta have got a, they've scored a lot of tries anyway, but they've got a really good balance this year because they have a couple, they have an extra threat that wasn't Brown just was not a threat last year at all. And and now he's killing it. So I think that's an important thing with Guther is you can't just look at his attacking numbers and use that to judge how he's playing because the fact that he's out there and in the right positions holds up defences and it gives Brown more time and, and, and more ball and he needs to be getting it because he's really come very well.
1: Yeah, and we do need to move on, but there is one more mm. thing that we need to touch on in this game and that was a couple of controversial calls. Uh, Moses Ford pass. Uh, I think everybody acknowledges it was a Ford pass. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think I do agree that it it looked worse because of the way he spun around, you know, in the angle. It it looked worse than what it probably was, but it was definitely Ford. And I will, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go on a rant because we're going to finish off in this game to go on to the the next one. But I, I tell you what, I do not understand why the NRL, like the NRL try and make out like it's great that they come out and acknowledge mistakes. But, like, it was a real backhander with this one. They were like, oh, look, you know, people are just exaggerating. You know, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that forward. Yeah, it was a little bit forward. And it's like, look, if it's forward, it's forward. You know, if you're admitting it's a mistake, why are you trying to half defend it as well or trying to have a go at people? Because at the end of the day, it's a forward pass in a really important game where one of those teams is going to play in the grand final this year. And these are the sort of calls that we were scared of. Now, I don't think it had any impact on the game, and people will disagree with me on that. There's a lot of people online. That's fine. At the end of the day, the Cowboys had a good enough lead with 25 to go well after that call to be able to go on with it and win. They were in the driver's seat to win, and then, and that's what you want in these games. If there's bad calls, you want it at the start, and you want the team that was on the end of the bad call to have the lead in the last 25 minutes and have the opportunity to win the game based on their play, not based on the calls in the first half. I thought that happened. So I had no issue with that. Other people had an issue with the now, Lolo Sinbin. Now, Toma Lolo, I was initially upset as somebody who doesn't like it when you go back plays and, and make a call. And especially if you go back plays and end up bidding someone. But what he did is well and truly a three week suspension. And when I saw it, I was like, wow, I wonder if they're gonna actually send him off because it was late. And I again defend plays all the time about being late, but it was late. And he did go through with it. He didn't attempt to pull out at all. And it was a shoulder directly to the face. It wasn't even a little bit high. It was it was shoulder to face. We've seen less than that sent off this year. So I thought, wow, this is going to really ruin this game if he's sent off entirely. He got 10 in the bin, which I'll live with, especially in the type of game that we got. But it was never not going to be a, a 10 in the bin at a minimum. So I, I thought that was fair. I thought the Moses pass was bad miss, but it didn't end up, you know, dictating the game. And even with Tom Malolo, again, we talk about that last third of the game when, the, you know, the Cowboys still had the opportunity. So I didn't think either... Um, ruin the game, Luke, like some pundits seem to think. And I certainly think that the Tom Lolo sin bin was 100% correct.
0: Yeah, I don't think it was a send-off and I don't think he should have stayed on. So I think if they got that right, that was a sin bin, that's fine. Um, I hate them going back plays as well. But sometimes, I mean, it's it's really bad and it was going to take Puppley off the field and I, I can't cop seeing a replay of that and then not actioning it, having the Cowboys get him to stay on and they lose Papalehi potentially, you have to go back. I I hate it, but you probably do. Uh, Moses, yeah, it was a forward pass. I don't know why they come out and admit the mistakes anyway. I think they should stick to admitting when the bunker makes mistakes because when the referees and touchies make mistakes, it's live. I don't see what benefit there is in saying they got that call wrong when it's a split-second decision and it's a wrong judgment and that happens in games. Like, I get the bunker stuff because you've got time to watch it all. If they bugger that up, they should come out and admit they got it wrong. What's the point of saying yeah? The touchy missed a forward pass. That he'll have missed a knock on in that game somewhere. I bet you anything. They don't come out and say there was a knock on in the twelfth minute and the tackle and no one saw it. You know, like that stuff um, gets missed all the time. So I don't see why they come out on it anyway. Uh, but what I will say is that, as you said, it looked worse than it was. And my criticism of the referees and Tachi is if it looked worse than it was, that's sort of not a reason to let it go. That's a reason you really shouldn't miss it. Um, you know, <laughs> like if it looks worse than it is, then you probably should be calling it. It was it, a fairly a, highlighted play. Yes, yeah, it? It, was, yep. it, was, it, was, it was there. He was in position. It was a shocking call. I hate touch judges. They don't do anything um, ever. They just stand there. And I, I can't recall that. I don't know why we even have them. They're so bad. I really can't can't cop them but in, in the defense it, i agree with you 20 minutes to go well up in the game in the driver's seat um, they made a mistake coming out of their own half when drinky went on a shift and ended up being hitting bodies and going to an intercept and it just changed the game The the, the eels never looked like losing from there, in my view so the cowboys i would be aggrieved if that happened to if i was a knight you know in some other universe where the knights make a prelim i would be really upset about that call but i, I once you calm down and think about it, I'd say we still should have won the game, you know, mm. once you take that emotion out from the point that they got to, they shouldn't have lost from there. And that doesn't have anything to do with the fourth pass.
1: So the Panthers versus Rabbits, 32 to 12 Panthers won. And I think everybody was booking them in for the grand final, pretty much by you know, round four this year, but mm. certainly this final series. And when you look at that scoreline, I think a lot of people go, yeah, that's pretty much what I thought might happen. Um, because Penrith is so much better than South. But, Souths are up 12-0 in this game. Yeah, the first 20 minutes, it was all Souths. And certainly the, the Penrith well-oiled machine that we're used to wasn't quite running the way that we're used to. And I think that South definitely had a, a good chance. And it was one of those games where I sort of turned around and went, wow, 12-0 up, 20 minutes in, um, in this type of pressure cooker game, this could be, this could be a real... I guess, challenge for Penrith, and it's a good one because you want the top teams to be challenged like this. And Penrith, like all the great teams, responded really well. You know, they scored just before the half in the 36th minute, and then Brian Toto had an absolutely sensational um, individual try that he scored in the 40th minute on the buzzer. And that really, really put them back in the game, but it really hurt Souths immensely because going in 12 all, you know, I think that Souths probably were thinking they could go in 12 nil up and if you can and then you can come out with a full head of steam and start the second half like you did the first penrith are under the pump a lot but penrith really got out of jail there and they earned it as well with their play but it was a really interesting first half
0: yeah it was it was good that's the thing is that once you get to 12 nil you're only an intercept or a, you know something, the ball hits the ground, you skip up, you're only one play away from 18-0 and you're probably not going to get run down. So it's really, as much as Penrith was still in it, it it gets really tense because you don't see teams come from 18-0 down in finals very often. And you're only ever one good play from Cody or Luttrell away at that point or a mistake from it happening. And so I was really captivated with it. Um, I thought, I don't want to take away from South, but I thought everything that could go their way went their way for the 12-0 lead. I thought they got a few penalties that they're not bad calls, but they were sort of borderline. They got down the end there. I thought they scored, you know, a try off Mark Nichols off. I think it was Nichols. It was someone offloaded the ball into a Panthers player and it hit his back and like lands in the end goal. You know what I mean? Like that yeah, was, like, it was Nichols. Oh yeah. You're like, you're sort of like, well, that won't happen again. This sort of, you know, it hasn't happened all year. And anytime you throw a bad offload into another team player, how often do you score off it? And then Penrith had multiple tries disallowed, which I'm not saying was the wrong call for a few of them, but the fact was Penrith were consistently getting down and nearly scoring. Like there was a, um, I think there ended up being two situations where Tane Milne dropped spiral bombs cold, where South ended up with a play the ball on one and a penalty on the other. And again, those were the right calls, but it's just usually when your winger is just consistently dropping bombs, you don't end up with a leg up down the field. And so it sort of just felt like everything that could possibly Go against Penrith, just kept doing. Like South winger drops the ball, penalty South. Penrith score, no try, over and over and over. And and I just sort of thought, oh, if they just stay calm, they'll come good. And and they did, and they they deserve a lot of credit for that. Like you said, it was sort of what I met, was talking about with Para before, the ability to play below your best and not panic. Um, so I thought that was awesome from them, and they really deserve to win. I think the one thing I was really critical on the night of, and I still am, is just I. Uh, I know he's a good coach and he's got great success, but everyone does stupid stuff in rugby league and what in the world Cleary is doing by benching Coruscant I just do not understand it's they. If they had have gone on to lose that would have been why Um, in that first 20 minutes there was maybe nine tackles in two sets on the try lines where Kenny just completely botched up the attacking set. Um, the attacking play, threw it behind people into knees. He ran out of dummy half two steps before passing, cluttered their attack up, and there was a two full set of six, six, a set of six at nil all and six nil that they just did nothing with. And when you're in tight games, which is going to happen and it could happen next week, you just can't give up 20 minutes where you can't attack because no. um, he's just so far below the level. Coruscant is so good as well. That's another thing. But but Kenny is, is – I'm sorry, Penrith fans, he's not any good. Like, he's not a good dummy half. He's not a bad – He's doing a decent job at that lock roll coming on, and that's fine. But he he's not a first grade dummy half, and whenever he plays there, they play sideways. They go out the back and they get minced. They look a totally different team.
1: I'd almost like controversially say if he was a if he was Nathan Cleary's brother, <laughs> being obviously Ivan Cleary's son, whether he'd be the Jake Arthur equivalent and whether he'd yeah. be getting the same vitriol because it's a similar sort of scenario where he's not needed. Um, to replace, you know, a a hooker or especially to start at hooker. And he's not really needed on the bench and he's not really done enough to show that he's up to it yet. Um, So it it really, I I do not understand it at all. I do not get it at all. Uh, And I think that if it was a lesser coach, uh, certainly if it was, you know, the Titans doing this or something, or the Tigers, Maybe they'll do it next year and they'll get hammered for the same thing that you know, <laughs> the Premiership-winning Panthers were doing with Appy anyway. But I agree with you 100%. Um, I, I think the second half, you know, the Panthers-Panthers the, the just went on with it. And all of a sudden, four minutes in, Spencer Leeneu scores. Uh, another 11 minutes later, Targo scores. And then all of a sudden, the Panthers are 12 points up. And then we have the, the Tane Milne uh, send-off. Now there's 17 minutes to go in that game, and certainly 12 down was going to be hard for South to run down, but they had an opportunity. And that basically shut the door on it and ensured that Panthers were going to run away with it. And the Milne send-off, you know, I've got to say a few things about it. Uh it definitely ended the game. That was it. Um, but I thought that Souths were playing you know re- reasonably poorly anyway, and Penrith were flying, and they were they're hard to stop when they're like that, unless you're really, really playing well, which Souths weren't. But it was also something where he not only deserved it, but it's been the MO for Tane in his whole career. It's why he never initially came through at the Dragons well. It's why he didn't, you know, cement a starting spot and have teams after him for big contracts and stuff. It's his his discipline, um, his attitude and, and the, the way he plays football is, is a really good park footballer or second grader, I should say. But it, it's he's never tidied it up for first grade. So it's not even one of those things where I think that you can, um, you know, blame a brain explosion or whatever else. It's like if you pick Tane Milne, this is why he hasn't had a stellar NRL career and he's actually in his mid to, you know, approaching his later 20s. This is why. So, you know, and and when you're picking those type of guys in these big games, these are the type of things that can happen. And you mentioned the drop balls as well. It was an unhappy night for him. But when you're looking at what Souths have been doing, you know, they've been playing really well off the back of Luttrell, having blinders. He didn't. He had 12 runs at the footy, um, largely forgettable evening where he certainly was not a match winner. And then you've got guys like Richie Kenner and, and Tane Milne in the back line, which all due respect, you know, they're just not first... First choice first graders, you know, and and this is a type of thing that can happen as well, and that's why they, you know, someone like Milne isn't a first choice first grader. So, I'm, I'm assuming you're happy with the send off.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, on on the send off in particular, it was clearly a send off, and I think the NRL hasn't got been given enough criticism over this. I think they need to be baked and they need to wear a lot of responsibility for that moment because why was he playing? Why was he allowed to play? The, the, the judiciary system they've got at the moment is ridiculous. He did the same thing two weeks ago twice. He was sin binned for doing the same thing two weeks ago twice. And I do not understand how he wasn't suspended. Um, to, why was he? There was one in the Roosters game. game
1: in particular that was, was quite annoying for me that I thought was pretty bad. And that was the one well, that he ended up getting sin for. Yeah. Well,
0: he we got sin twice in that game. Like he, he went twice for doing this. And this is how he tackles. And this new system. Of I understand they're trying to make people not miss games, but th- this is foul play. They're, 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 not, they're not these accidental things. It, it, he, you can't go around jumping, leaving the ground and stiff-arming people on the head and playing. like Because that, that, the point of the judiciary is that you alter your behaviour because of the punishment, because you don't want to miss games. And if you get two or three weeks for stuff like this, you stop doing it. But he does it and he's playing again you know, he's not missing game time. And and that could have been really nasty, that one. That was like that was a really bad high tackle. He was off the ground. He stiff armed him. And it's one of those where you look at it and you say, what was he trying to achieve? Like let's say he that hit him in the chest. What that wouldn't it would have bounced off. Like that's not the sort of tackle that if he had a hit him lower would have been a good tackle. And because you can see that sometimes, right? People make a tackle and it slips up a bit high and it's an accident, but it would have been a good shot and it, it missed. That wouldn't have been a good, like he is only trying to basically go after him in that situation because it just wouldn't, if you jump off the ground and swing your arm, you'll if you don't hit them in the head, you'll bounce off. That hits him in the shoulder or the chest. You get knocked over. It's an old fashioned stiff arm. It's, it's what it is. It is. It's it an, it an old fashioned stiff He keeps doing to the it. Face. He, he yeah. keeps doing it. Why is he playing? Like, why hasn't he been suspended? Um, but you're, you're he right. did
1: get he did get six to seven weeks. So, like, I think that the suspension. Yeah, but why was didn't ample. he get suspended
0: from the Roosters game? We well, mm. did it twice. So, I right, that's what I mean. Like, he got yeah. he, he got he did it twice, and they're bad, and they're obviously bad. He, how do you get Sinbin bin twice in a game for doing it? pretty much that tackle minus ten percent? It wasn't quite as bad but it's the same tackle and then be playing. And that's why, because you, you don't have to alter your behaviour. You get a little fine. Like, you know, but you don't, it doesn't alter anything. It's, you know, looks like fining people for, you know, really serious criminal offences. Like, you go, well, you know, I don't care about that. Like, if you don't punish people, they don't, they don't alter it. And I think it, I just think it hasn't been spoken about enough that that was caused by the NRL a bit, Um I agree with you. I, I thought I'd mention on Souths is that I agree when you mentioned their backs and I know Johnson was out, but this is the thing you have to get right in big games. And they, they were hurt a little bit by their bench, having a few guys out, but um, their backline they're going to have to learn to get more out of some of those guys or recruit smartly in the cheap, in you know sort of the, the bargain bin, because when you build a roster, they've built it similar to Melbourne's now they've gone all in on Cook and Cody and Luttrell. And when you do that, when when you go big in multiple spine players, you have to get your cheaper guys right. Um, you know, they don't need to be a superstar, but they need to not let you down. Um, and Milne at the moment was letting them down. They've used Jackson Polo a bit before who has let them down. And you've got to uh, – Craig Bellamy was very good at it. Robbo's very good at it. You've got to find bargain guys who just don't stuff up. Um, yeah. if, you're putting the, if you're going to go really heavy – in three or four spots, you've got to get that other stuff right. And that's not a criticism of the coach. He's a new coach and they've been good for a while, but he's just got to keep an eye on that because they could, they've got to find a couple of answers to those, some of those backline spots.
1: And they've gone out four times in the last five years, um, mm-hmm. the South Sydney Rabbitohs, in this in this moment, in this moment to get into a grand final. And I, I actually defended them on, on Twitter and I was called, out you know, tongue-in-cheek called out as a Roosters fan that's being positive about Souths and I don't know how to be a Roosters fan. That was pretty funny. I appreciate that. I probably should be more negative against South, but I actually defended them because I, I kind of think it's unfair because it's actually, it's a pretty big achievement. You know, to me, you can look at a glass half full and say well, they've done really well four out of the last five years to get to this point, you know, and it's, it is a positive outlook, but I mean, like they could have just made the finals half of those times and not gotten to this game. And this year, especially, I don't think they probably, don't think many thought they'd get to this point. That would almost get to a grand final, you know, and, and people wouldn't say anything, but because they did get within one win from a grand final, they get criticized because they've done that too many times. You know, it, it's hard to make grand finals. And I think yeah. they've sort of, overachieved, including this year on some of those. So that yeah. probably opens up too to where, where to now from South. They've lost. They're not going to the grand final. We're going to discuss the grand finalists and mm. our predictions in a moment. But for South, I I don't think that they're going to be a, a top 14 this year. I don't think they'll make it to this stage next year. Um, I think, you know, top eight, I, I'm going to put them in there and they might even improve a bit. But I think that we saw this final series, the reliance they have on Latrell Mitchell uh, can be uh, you know can really hurt them because you know it's not it can't all be on one player. And on the weekend and even the week before Latrell didn't have great games. And that that makes it hard for them because Cody Walker plays better when Latrell's playing better as well. Um, and then all of a sudden what you're left with is, you know, like we said, uh, bits and pieces, parts in the back line. Um, guys like Nichols I was really impressed with. He's playing above where people sort of expect him to be at as well. But they just mm. don't have enough in them at the moment for me to say they're going to be contending it next year. you know. I think that there could be some drop-off for them as well, um, considering that they've you know, obviously finished up being top four when you
0: consider they're one game away from the grand final. Yeah, there's probably a few things about them. The, the obvious one to where you go is, I agree, I'm not critical of them because if you go back and look at how many prelims they've made, they weren't in the top four all the time those years. They've regularly come from the bottom half. So the bottom line is they're, they're a team that over the course of the season has not regularly been... A top four side, but they're not a top four side every year. They're a side that makes the finals, but they're quite often in the lower half of the the eight. Um, and they've been proven that they're a really good side when it counts. That they they're able to win finals and go deep, so they deserve credit for that. Um, the, it's easy, I might sound a bit hypocritical because I've bagged Parramatta for losing finals, but the difference that I have is that most seasons people have had Parramatta in their top four and said they can win the comp. You got halfway through the year, Parramatta's yep. killing it; they 100%. can win the comp and If you go to South, which year were they supposed to, which year do you think they should have won? Because I I thought it was remarkable that they made the grand final last year and a great achievement. Um, Seabold's first year a few years ago stands out that they had missed the finals the year before and no one expected them to be good. So that was a real achievement. And in between those years, I just don't recall there being a year where anyone thought South were a super favorite to win the competition. So they're a team that always gets in there and makes it really hard for them to get out, they, they beat teams and they're an awful team to draw in a final. And they've beaten quite a few teams I didn't think they would. They beat Penrith last year in week one. They beat East this year in week one. They're beating teams they're not supposed to beat. And so, yeah, I just don't think they should have won a comp, to be honest with you. So I'm not mm-hmm. critical cool of them. I think they've done well and in the finals. Um, I think that. The second thing I wanted to mention is people said, oh, they missed a few players. And I just want to point out that this is something they'll need to address. We spoke about depth and things, but if the coach and the media say we're missing Burgess and Haveli and that hurt us, if you include Haveli in the players missing as hurting you, you do have to look at your depth issues. And I am not bagging him. I like Haveli, but if it comes down to you saying him being out of a prelim hurts you, you really need to find ways to improve that depth because that is not a player that you need to miss. He's a guy that you can pick, but come on. Um, the last one is I just wanted to have a bit of a crack at the media on this is that I've been really annoyed by the coverage of Latrell versus Dylan Edwards out of this game. Um, it, it bugs me because everyone keeps highlighting Latrell's stats versus Dylan Edwards' stats, thirty something runs v twelve, and then they start talking about is Latrell fit enough and does he need to move position? The amount of extremes we have in this is so ridiculous. Like two weeks ago, he was a two million dollar player. Apparently, now <laughs> now he shouldn't be playing fullback. Um, the answer is he is an imperfect superstar. He doesn't do everything perfectly. He is imperfect and has flaws, but he's a wonderful player. And the thing is, he has never tried to play like dylan edwards him and dylan edwards have the same number on they are not playing the game in the same way his role in that team is not the same and they did not lose he did not have a good game that's fine i thought he threw some rushed passes out wide that weren't on and put him under a bit of pressure that's all fine but him having a good game has nothing to do with making 30 runs he will never make 30 runs and his best game does not have 30 runs it probably doesn't have 20 it's about the quality of his touches and what he does should he get a bit more involved sure but stop with the basic stupid comparisons he he is not he is not playing fullback and his role is not to play like dylan edwards and if they'd won and he had 12 touches which has happened plenty of times he didn't touch it that much against east um he's got a lot of rap so just the simplistic coverage just bugs me a little bit it's it's so if they lose latrell's lazy and didn't touch it enough and if they win he's the two million dollar brilliant superstar who can do it all without much you know many touches and the truth is just in the middle a bit he's brilliant and a little bit imperfect you know I was about to say I'm pretty
1: both I'm pretty both yeah. ways on it because I agree with the, the criticism you know he could be fitter um he could be doing more on the field and you want him to be more involved than what he is at times and that was an issue on the weekend but I would never say that you need to move him from fullback because of that because the positives and how he can play when he's at his peak, outweigh the negatives. You'd hope that he's going to keep developing his game. He's still only 25.
0: Yeah, And and if he he got fitter and did all that stuff, he still would not have had Dylan Edwards' numbers in that game, like, ever. No, that's why you can't compare the numbers, because you're right. right? (laughs)
1: They're they're different players in different roles in the teams. But the criticism of Latrell is warranted, um, I think. But he can improve. Not, totally. not moving yeah. him, <laughs> not yeah. to the point that you'd say he needs to move. Not no, at all. the, the uh, For Sias, He's got to be at one for them.
0: Yeah, the, the truth has to lie a little bit in between he is God when they win and he is lazy and um, <laughs> needs to move position when they lose. You need to get a bit more into the zone of he is a brilliant player and there are some things he can improve on.
1: <laughs> <So> let, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, let's <laughs> highlight a couple of these South performances in this because 32 to 12, they did lose quite badly and they did lose mm. it completely in the second half. But Care Murray. 21 runs, two offloads, 53 tackles in 80 minutes. Uh, in those two offloads, one of them was a line break assist as well. And he just toiled away with only one error and no penalties conceded by smashing it in the middle for 80 minutes. Uh, it was, again, he's just he's done this all final series. I thought he was remarkable. Um, I'm going to shout out to a couple of... Uh, uh, young guys here. Uh, Colin Matungi's had a really good season. Mm-hmm. Now a lot of people would watch that and say he didn't really have much of an impact. He tried his guts out, 40 tackles with zero misses, uh, no errors and no penalties, which has been a, a bit of a problem for him at times, and 14 runs for 133 metres. He's side dangerous
0: too. Got beaten, himself. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh,
1: those runs, like people say, he didn't break the line or he didn't really get many tackle breaks, but he looked like he could have, you know, mm-hmm. and so he just worked really hard. But a couple of the other young guys, you know, young Tass... He he worked his ass off. 21 runs, three offloads, which isn't easy to do against that Penrith defence out the back. Uh, a line breaker, try assist. Um, he, he really tried hard, and I thought that he's come of age this final series where we have
0: seen some things from
1: him that have been good. Um, he's a good and-
0: find for them. He, he's one we could talk about in finding cheaper and budget guys to fill a hole. He's the perfect example of that. He's doing a great job.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I think so too. And look, Lachlan stats don't look good. They do not look good at all. Um, but in saying that, uh, I actually think this final series, he's done some really good things. You know, some of his kicking and some of his actual halfback play, I think, has been positive. Complete, uh, certainly 100% better than what he was in the first half of the season. And, and you know, that's worth noting because this is a kid that got dropped and, you know, ended up you know coming back in the side, d- didn't kick stones, didn't care, and then came into the final series. And I, I thought that he's played some of his better football over the last six six odd weeks. So I, I think that he deserves it too, because I, I I liked his toughness this final series, mm-hmm. including in that game as well, despite the fact that he obviously didn't have the chance to throw in some classy try assists or any of that type of thing.
0: That's good. I'm glad we're going to get a point of disagreement. We were due a good disagreement. Um, <laughs> don't rate him. Um, don't think he's any good at all. I think if he played for Newcastle or the Tigers or the Warriors, he'd already been in the Super League. I have no idea what anyone is seeing and what he's doing. Um, I don't think he contributes to anything that's happening on that field. And I really think that I don't understand what faith they're putting in him. Uh, I don't see it. I, I think he's slow, small, um, unclassy with the ball, doesn't set up tries and with a bad kicking game. Uh, I'll give you one thing. I've just bagged the hell out of him. He's a really good defender. That's not enough. That's secondary. I, I, I cannot see it. And I've got South friends who think the same. They message me in games going like, what are they doing with him on the field? He's kicked out on the full multiple times this final series. He seven tackles setted from his own half a couple of times and from bombs on halfway. Uh, He hits knees. I don't think he has a try assist for the finals outside of maybe last week. Um, I might be wrong about that. He might have snuck one late when they were roasting Cronulla, but I I don't think... I I thought he had a good 20 minutes against Cronulla when the game was over and they were rolling them. And I, I think he has not had a touch in the other two games on, on with the ball. I do not think there's been a touch of the football that he has had that's made me think that he was offering them anything. I think he's standing there and just shoveling the ball out and it's part of the reason. So I think that's some it, that
1: expectations yeah. though. Like this is his, his first year as a young halfback now. And again, it's, uh, you know, I'm comparing the expectation of that first of all and second of all, the first half of the season he was droppable. And he was yeah. nowhere near good enough. And I, I think that he's definitely improved. I'm happy he, to disagree, but I he's think a, he's, definitely a improved. He, he's a question
0: player. He's a question player. Everyone goes, it's his first year. Where's this linear halfback progress? Can you tell me a great halfback who didn't look good in their first year? Like, am I missing something? Like, even guys like Mitchell Moses, like, they who Ted have Townsend. flaws. They were, well, yeah, he still doesn't look good. Uh, like, uh, say Mitchell. It, Say Mitchell Moses, like for all the flaws, when he came through, everyone's like, "Wow, look at him!" And Luke Brooks's first game and all this stuff, and that, thats subpar ones. You go to Cleary and Thursons and John's and stuff, and it's incredible. I know I'm setting the bar high, but when they say, "Oh, he's going to be a really good player," which really good halfback wasn't good immediately? Sam Walker uh, coming in last year, where you're uh, like, see, wow, I think the expectations
1: are completely different, though. Like Sam Walker was coming through as a
0: prodigy, one of the best halfbacks. Yeah, but there's only good halfbacks and seen. bad halfbacks. There's only good ones and bad ones. There's there's six or seven really good ones, and everyone else isn't any good in the comp. And if you don't have a good one, you're not any good. If you go through the good ones, like there's no, who's, oh, they're pretty good. They're either really good or they're not. And I just think he's in the not category. I just don't think he does anything. Um, I can't, I can't remember something that he did this year. It was in. I just can't remember it.
1: I actually think that he had some, some good kicking touches in the last six yeah. weeks where he was getting some forced dropouts yeah. and actually doing well, some good kicking. And I you know, mentioned I'm... the defending too. But...
0: He's a very good defender. He's a very good defender. But it is secondary and you've got to do the other thing. I, I just don't think I, – I, I can't see – I feel like coming through at a big club has got him some weird rep where people say he's going well. And I'm like, on what metric? Which metric? What, what's mm. – you got it. the halfback has to do things like that. That's what they're there to do. And I just think that there's this weird development narrative around him that I don't think is born out. I think most halfbacks actually burst on the scene and then regress a bit when people work them out and the good ones work away around it. I can't think of someone who, um, even Ben Hunt, he played hooker off the bench and everything. But when he came in at halfback straight away, it was like, oh, unbelievable the average 70 in super coach and stuff like that the ones that can play and end up having great careers or even really good careers cherry evans all these guys you notice them straight away um some guys fizzle out sando fizzled out ash taylor fizzled out but the guys that can play they come even them they come on hard and yeah, they show something.
1: Yeah. See, it's, it's our it's our different um, expectations on it. Look, I'm not expecting him to ever be a star, and and all the guys that you've named pretty much are stars. And I get mm. your point that you know they're either good or they're not. But for South, again, mm. we, you know, it's similar to Dylan Edwards in the opposition team. You know, um, if you put Dylan Edwards in a different team, he wouldn't be anywhere near as impactful because it doesn't work for that team. Yeah. Um, I sort of, in a way, feel sorry for Lachlan Ilias in that um, the role that he has to play isn't really the role that you want a, a junior star halfback to come in and, and play um, because he's he's the fourth string in that spine. You know, mm. Damien Cook, Latrell Mitchell, Cody Walker, they're going to eat first. And if there's anything left over, maybe he can try and make a play. Otherwise, you know, just be a foil there and don't miss tackles and mm. don't make mistakes sort of thing. And, you know, that's the opposite of Sam Walker because, you know, someone like... Robbo said, you know, Sam, I, I don't care that these guys are other rep players. You're the halfback. You yell at Teddy that you're getting the ball and where the play is going and stuff. You know, Ilias doesn't have that. And I can sort of see why that's impacted his performance a little bit. And as well, I, I'm, I've am i probably initially sounded like that. I'm saying Ilias was mm. fantastic. I don't think he was, but I think that he was a lot better than what he was at the start, which shows some promise for them.
0: That, that might, maybe that might be, he's true. Going to be better.
1: And they don't have any money to pay anyone else. This is the other thing. So they need guys like him to be a foil. Yeah. Well
0: that that that's fair enough. I think that I I think he started to be talked out as someone who's progressing well and I don't see that. I think he's got a bit better. If I was South Sydney, I see no reason that they would have locked him in as their halfback. I think I would still be open to looking at what's in the cupboard and looking out there at options. I, I, I'm not saying I would turf him. I just I, This weird narrative that they've found their half back, not for me. Um, I think to play in the halves in the NRL and have a career, you have to have something that worries someone, whether it's a great kicking game or a great step or an incredible pass. Like you have to have a weapon and the guys that don't have, or you have to be really quick, yep. but it just has to be a weapon, like one thing that worries people and then the control and the other stuff and bossing people around, that that can all happen, but you have to be, you have to have some threat. And Flanagan's a good example of this. Is Flanagan learned the structure in the games, the play Kyle Flanagan, but he has no threat. So nobody worries about him. They sit off him mm-hmm. and he hasn't kicked on because in juniors, he bossed everyone around and gave it to the big players and they scored. But in first grade, it doesn't work like that. And because nobody's worried about, his long pass or his step or his running game, they sit off him, ignore him, and it just makes it easier to defend everyone else. And I, if, if you've got a guy who has a big sidestep, if if Ilias had a big sidestep, they'd be worried about that and it holds a few guys up and it really helps his short passing game come along or it helps Latrell get more space or whatever it is. And I would, if I was South Sydney, I, I would start next year with him, but I wouldn't be locked into him. I wouldn't think we found a halfback yet. I, I could see him not making it and I, I just don't, I don't think he's going to be what people think he might be, but I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. (laughs) <laughs>
1: oh yeah, well, I don't know how many times you've been wrong. I mean, Parramatta is in grand final. <laughs> that's but... <laughs> it. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll wait and see. Uh, look, if he's if he doesn't get any better next year, look, I think he could be dropped and they could look at other options. But I think that he he isn't as bad as what he was the first
0: couple months, which was pretty awful. Yeah, he's uh, definitely got better, and I really should I really should emphasise that his defence he would be close to the third best defensive half in the comp. I think only Cleary and Brown defend better there, and you do deserve wraps for that. It doesn't mean you can play NRL at halfback but it's a hard thing to do as a little bloke. And I should, having completely bagged him, should really give him a lot of credit for that. It's not, it's not an easy job to do when you're a little bloke. And he does. He is a really good defender. the side of things, yeah.
1: Dylan Edwards, 26 runs for almost 300 metres, 14 tackle breaks, a line break and an offload. Uh, that's an incredible work rate for him. I was really impressed with Brian Toto. You know, people were ready to write obituaries for Brian Toto's career as one, as the best winger in the game. You know coming through a couple of years ago, everyone thought, wow, he's got a mortgage on that. And then this year, he just hasn't been up to standard. But this final series, he, he's really come back. He got a, he scored a really good try, had, a th- had three tackle breaks, but more importantly, he had that work rate up. 20 run runs to lead everyone in run metres at 293 run metres. I thought he was outstanding. And Nathan Cleary, you know, in that second half onslaught, he, he was at the forefront of that. Scored a try himself, had a line break try, assist... <laughs> Got his um, mistakes out. You know, he had a couple of mistakes and uh, his kicking wasn't quite as good in that first half, but then that came better. And then the forward guys like Isaiah, 15 runs and offload 39 tackles and basically the sort of leadership performance that you expect from from him and that you pay him for in these big games. So I thought they had some really good performers as well, Penrith, but we do need to uh, move on from this game. So let's just get on with it and go straight to Barnsley's Spray of the Week. A favourite segment of Perso who comes on here, he loves hearing me give a spray, and I'm going to give a spray about this game. Um, one of the things that we haven't touched on and that we haven't mentioned is that despite the fact that the CFC News is up 12 nil, they're also really fortunate with some of those calls. There was a Crichton try that the NRL has come out and said was a clear try. And when you're looking at the video footage in a bunker and you're seeing the stills, you can see why they're saying it's a try and you could see it on the night. That's one thing. But the real one that I'm just going to have an absolute spray out here is the Luai obstruction call. I thought that that was absolutely horrendous. And we've gotten to a point now where we've said it all year, in a finals game, in important games, we're going to have some really howler of calls. Now, I, I hate that people are saying he ran behind his own player. How many times 10 metres out from your own try line getting a kick Do you see like a Tedesco or another fullback run behind their winger or somebody else who has their hands up in the air? But the defensive line is meters away and not making a tackle on them. So it doesn't make any difference at all. You know, this is the whole thing. The rule is there. It's called obstruction. What is the (laughs) definition of obstruction? You have to obstruct a defender trying to make a tackle. There was nobody. Nobody nobody trying to make a tackle there when Luai just ran behind a guy that was complicit and out of the play in his own team. You know, there is no rule that says run, running behind your own player and the explanation in the rule book saying, if you ever do this, you're going to be penalised and you hand over possession. That's not how it works. It's not how it's worked all year. If you don't score a try, nobody cares or ever calls it. But for some stupid reason, There was no obstruction here. It did not impact that try being scored whatsoever because there was no South player taken out. I would have been happier if a South player jumped four metres forward into someone to try and pretend there was an obstruction because at least I can say, okay, well, the match review committee didn't use common sense or maybe they're handcuffs where they got a call. But that, that didn't even happen. There wasn't even any impact. There wasn't even any obstruction. I could not believe that that got called up. And once that happened as well, you know, the game... Could have gone either way still. You know, Souths could have gone on and won that. And then the narrative afterwards would have been Penrith aren't in a grand final that they deserve to be in because there was two crucial calls that took away 12 points from Penrith that never should have happened. And we just, I have to say, to end this spray, Luke, the NRL is so... Incredibly lucky they should go and buy 17 lottery tickets if they want to get their revenue up, they could probably double their revenue from this year and, and try and make up a story about how they managed the game so well because they are so lucky that these calls have kept happening all year, including in this final series. And it still has ended up being the right teams going through.
0: Yeah, it, it has been that. That was a shocker. I got really annoyed because a few people said to me when I, I blew up about it when I was watching it, and a few people said to me, Oh, no he ran behind him or don't run behind him. And I was like, you, 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 are like, you guys are like, it's like being brainwashed. Some people now, I'm like, all the fans saying that stuff have forgotten that that's not a, that, this was never a rule. Um, You know, as you've said before, I do a, po- a podcast on old games, please, anyone listening to this, just go and, even click up a highlights reel, but just go and watch any game from the early 2000s, the late 90s, the 80s, anytime. time. People do what that play all the time. People are running behind their own players all the time. It was never a rule. It's about obstruction. It's about obstructing people. And, and when they brought in the block plays a few years ago, 10 years ago now, when everyone started doing the block plays, they sort of, to make it easier for themselves, made it that you can't run behind the lead runner on a block. And then slowly they morphed that um, into, oh, you can't run behind anyone ever. And they just slowly got there. They heated this up slowly. It's like a frog in the, jar of hot water they just heated it up and heated it up (laughs) on us and eventually now you've got people saying oh you can't run behind your own player you've always been able to I'm not saying you can set out to do it and use him as a shield that's an obstruction but incidental running behind your own player when no one's impacted has always been allowed And, and it used to happen I was only watching a game the other day for the late 90s and I reckon Newcastle did 20 of them and none of them are pulled up because the runner would run an inside line and when he didn't pass to him he would just slowly shift behind him and then throw a long ball and it'd be like no one was obstructed there Exactly what I did, where you go, oh, there's a guy. The guys run a line or run an angle, and no one's about. There's no reason you can't run behind him. That doesn't end the play because it, it's, it's the NRL has bastardised that rule into a point where even fans think it's right now, and that really bothers me. <laughs> like, there's not even enough people saying this is wrong, and it just is. It's invented. It's something the NRL has invented in the last decade. It's not a rule of rugby league. It never has been. The rule was about shepherds, and shepherds and obstructions were about obstructing people people being defenders being blocked from getting there like yeah, it's style. You can't block the defender and it's become all this stuff and that's not the only example the inside shoulder thing is the inside and outside shoulder and all these weird stuff i'm like what does that mean just look at the play and tell me whether anyone was taken out that might have got there you know if he's not in the picture then it doesn't really matter and if he's in the picture and you know even if it's 20 percent chance he would have got there if you take him out yeah that's a no try if you've taken someone out but which shoulder they hit, whether or not they run behind someone, it's not, it's not relevant. The fullback example you give is great. If a fullback catches it on the 20 meter line in one corner, he, and he runs to the middle of the field, like a cross field to come back in, I guarantee you he's run behind probably six players, but they're all 20 (laughs) and 30 meters in front of him. Yeah. You know, why isn't that pulled up? Because is that not the same thing? You can't run behind your own player. I just thought it was incredible. Like it it was incredibly poor. I was so angry uh, because it was such a good try in a final too. It was really exciting. Mm. And it, deflated the whole moment right like you, it was this a crazy kick and then they start shifting it and you're like oh wow and Walker came from behind and nearly stopped the try with a tackle the whole thing was really exciting and it just deflated the whole moment um, well,
1: I'll, I'll go as far to say that in, in just in almost every finals game this season we've had a really bad call and like not yeah. just a oh they missed that a really bad call about every interpretation single one, call, almost. Like or interpretation, about interpretation call yeah. or something. And yeah. like, it's not good enough. And it's oh, I'm glad it's not getting as much coverage because you don't want it to take away from grand Mate. final week or what a good final series it has been, how exciting it is at this time of year. But geez, they'd want to be working overtime on fixing this because you cannot have that stuff happen in a preliminary final. You know, and people have made the joke that, you know, who who are they going to put it as the grand final referee because they've all botched up so many terrible
0: calls this year. And it's yeah. true. But look, well, Klein got it didn't he? I mean he had the worst the worst one of the entire season, <laughs> but anyway, but he still might yeah. be the best one this is a yeah. problem,
1: but you know look, let's do, let's go away from the spray and talk about some yeah. more positive stuff yeah. n r l w um last week we had a, a couple of big wins now we'll start off with your nights thirty six mm. now I think that a lot of people thought that the the Knights were going to be good. Um, we had Jamie Sound on this podcast a few months ago and he was talking about how he's he's worried about the Knights as being a dark horse. Um yeah. and aside aside from the roosters, he's the team that they're picking. That's back-to-back weeks now that they've won like 30 to 6 against the Dragons. They've had to beat them in back-to-back weeks. Yeah. And they did it really comprehensively. Uh it was a fantastic game of football from the Knights, and really, I guess, gonna punctuate a disappointing season from the NRL women's team. Um Upton got the first try six minutes in. She's been outstanding. I really like Dib. You know, Dib had a phenomenal um, origin try this year, which I just, it was a great solo try. And I just, she looked like a a top line. And uh, I don't want to come off condescending here, but she looked like a top line men's player, you know? And I think that's really important because the men are obviously well in advance in the years that they've played NRL and the skill level and stuff is there. And the women haven't built that up yet, which is no disrespect to the women at all. But she looked like that, you know. She reminded yeah. me of someone like a Matt Burton with that solo try and how he, you know, stepped and cut through. And um, and then she scored a great try in this one and had some great conversions as well and scored the bulk of the Knights' points.
0: Fantastic win for your Newcastle girls, mate. Yeah, it's awesome. Everyone's really getting behind it up here, which is good. Um, I- I'll put my hand up. when When they first brought out the NRLW, it didn't interest me. Um, And that's not a sexist thing. It's a, I don't watch any sport except men's rugby league and cricket. I liked them when I was five years old and I've never adopted soccer, basketball or anything, you know, it's just, I don't take things up, but it's won me over and and I I enjoy it now. I saw, I saw Parramatta play Newcastle earlier this year. It was my first game live and really enjoyed it. And, you know, it helps my team's gone well, obviously, and the men didn't give me much. So I was pretty ready to bind on, but everyone here has really got into it. They're really supportive. Uh, the girls are doing really well. I'm really glad you mentioned um, Dib because I was going to say it's um, Upton is incredible and deservedly getting all the raps. She's like a, she's like a, really is like a women's Billy Slater. Like she's scythingly fast and and hard to tackle. And, and obviously um, Millie gets a lot of raps and, and so Southwell, but but Dib is, is really important to that team. Um, and one of the big reasons is her kicking is that in the women's game, because the depth isn't there, one thing I've really noticed is that the difference a kicker makes. It's like Nathan Cleary on steroids because if someone... Uh, there is The drop-off is immense, yeah, isn't it's, it? A, it's immense. There, there are teams that don't have a kicker, that can't kick the ball um, very far at all, and Dib and Southwell have big kicks. Dib has a big kick, and she's kicked at 75% for goal. For the season. And again, there's some pretty, just because the depth hasn't built up and the time, as you said, isn't there. There's some teams that don't have a goal kicker at all. And she's kicking at at, at genuinely like at around an acceptable men's standard. She's really good. Um, She'd kick at the Knights men's team, I'll tell you that 75%. We had three kickers under 50 this year, but she's a really good goal kicker and a really good play kicker. And it's incredible what difference that makes in a game where the other team isn't doing it. And um to sort of expand on the nights a bit and, and get a bit of ahead of ourselves talking about the grand final is I saw them play Para live. And the one thing that stood out to me was Parramatta were a bit bigger that day and really gaining more meters than Newcastle. But their kicks, they were kicking the ball 25 meters on play five. So they were on their 40 and the ball was being caught on the 30 and 40. And Newcastle were making less ground, kicking off their own 40. And 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 hitting the other 20 through mainly Dib's got the biggest Southwell kicks, okay, but Dib's got a huge boot. And those things are really, really important when the other teams don't have them. Um it, it's incredible a difference it makes. And she is uh, like they she's one of the real key players they couldn't be without, but she's not getting the wraps a couple of the other girls get.
1: Yeah, and look, I, I've gotta say as well, Millie Boyle uh-huh. that try she scored in the tenth minute. I just I absolutely love Millie Boyle. Like I said a lot of times Isabel Kelly's my favorite player in the NRLW, Mm -hmm. but Millie Boyle's right up there. I I love how she plays the game and I love, I was talking to Perth, so I love how she's a different style of NRLW front rower. You know, she's got the size, but it's like she's just built and athletic and you don't get that from some of the other Front rowers in the NRLW. She's she's a different breed, and she's it's almost like um you know, I, I'll use like basketball analogies. It's almost like when you have someone like Wilt Chamberlain um, playing basketball, and they're they're twenty years ahead of their time yep. because his type of player in basketball didn't come around for another twenty years until the NBA was created. And you got a lot of Wilt Chamberlain type players, but he was just so far ahead of his time and his skill level and how good he was. It's like what Millie Ball's like. Like, she's just a giant of the game, and That try, if anyone oh. didn't see it, go and, go and watch it because she gives somebody a, a, a don't argue that comes to tackle her 15 metres out from the try line that pushes them back five metres onto their backside and then just sees the line and goes for it and just runs through a couple of other players without question and was always going to score that try. All you know, right. it was just, it's phenomenal. I love how, you know, she gives me the feelings of, Some of those throwback front rowers from the NRL in the 90s, the guys that used to score those type of tries, the guys that would just take a big run up and just say, no one's going to stop me. I'm going to score this one. I'm a front row. I don't care. I'm getting some tries on the board. And she's, I just loved it. Absolutely loved it.
0: Oh, She's great. Um, um, It's interesting you mentioned her being different to the other props because I actually had in a note to mention that a lot of the other front rowers are old school, uh, sort of really old NRL-era front rowers, like 80s and 90s. They're they're the bigger thicker um players who are a bit slower than the other people. Um, you know, like back if you go to the eighties, the props were the big slow guys, right? They weren't athletic and stuff. And and that the women's is a lot like old school men's league in that way. And Millie is like a prototype of people that are coming through now. Like she reminds me of a Joseph Tapanay. I was about got, to say Tappanay. Yeah, you yeah, took it, it out of it's, my mouth. Oh, every time I watch her, I go, it's like watching Joseph Tappanay because she's getting the ball and she jinx, she's she got a jink to look for space. She's got a palm if she needs it. She's got an offload and she's got a motor. Uh, she played the whole first half in that game, at prop, and it was hot. They were having drinks breaks because it was 30 degrees. And she, she made like 115 metres for a try, six tackle bus, 15 tackles, 16 carries and and a couple of offloads like you know in the front row on a 30 degree day it, it's incredible it she's a um i it, you can't underestimate or overestimate the impact that she's had on that team i think as well i mean Upton's got the star power in terms of the attacking plays uh, a lot of weeks but Millie's um really I, I i think binding them together and i really hope they win i think everyone would really get behind it here it's it's really kicked off a bit and um, I'm, I'm hoping it can keep going over the next few years. I would give the Knights a lot of credit because we all know they've got a lot of stuff wrong at that club. You can look at how it's been run this year. And the men's side of things shows that at the leadership's been wrong. The coaching's been wrong. The CEO has done some terrible things, but the one thing they've got right over the last couple of years, is they decided to take the NRLW seriously, um, they, they, got a team going it didn't go well and they thought right we've got a lot of good young local girls here which they do there's a lot of locals in that team with a lot of talent but if we want this to take off and we want people to buy in we need to go and get a couple of really good players and get them competitive so people have something to get behind and they spent the money and did it and it's worked people are backing it and a lot of the locals are going well everyone's talking about it and they deserve a lot of credit for that the club
1: oh 100 um the other game wasn't in a, in a relatively short history of the NRLW, but it's not going too far to say anyway that it is easily the biggest upset of all time in the history of the league. The Roosters were basically written a ticket to go into the grand final. Um, they were playing Parramatta, who won an NRLW finals ticket in the top four in the last round of the season because they finished on one win, which was the same as the Titans and the Broncos, but they beat the Broncos by twelve points, which on four and against pushed them through. Uh, it was one of those things where it was it was more than David and Goliath. Um, and the Roosters girls, I think, went into this one thinking they were already in the grand final because they started off poorly. Um, Quinlan got an early try in the 14th minute for the Eels. Then you thought, oh, okay, the you know power went over for the Roosters. Here's the Roosters coming. And then all of a sudden, you know, the next three tries were all Eels. And it was 24-4. to And you just sort of thought, oh, this is – sorry, it was 20-4. to And you just sort of thought, oh, the the, the Eels are going well and they're playing above themselves. But I thought watching the game that the Roosters girls, being the powerhouse team that they are and the favourites to win the comp, they were just going to come back. And even when there was 15 to go, I thought, I I still think they can come back. And it just didn't happen. And like I mentioned, Isabel Kelly is one of my favourite players. Her her and Jess Sergis, it's one of the most potent left and right combinations of attacking centres in the NRLW. It's the best centre pairing. and They can go either side to either of those girls and they can score tries out of nothing almost. And they're both just really quiet. Um, Isabel Kelly in particular, I thought, tried hard and came in for hit-ups and stuff, but she also dropped a ball cold too that was maybe a bit tough, but she could have scored a try there. It, it just never came together for the Roosters. Whereas the Eels, you know, I, I really like their number one, Broughton first year in the w She got the um, Rookie of the Year, I believe, at the Dalli M's last night. Uh, but they are just they came in and just played hard, which is what they did the last couple of weeks of football. And even against your Knights, I know that you mentioned that you were at that mm. um, game, I think, where the Knights only rolled them, uh, I think, in the last what, few minutes of the game. They scored a try to win by two points against the Eels.
0: Yeah, they scored with three minutes left and had to dib had to kick a goal from halfway to the sideline for to be up, um, and the short kickoff went to Parramatta and they had a set and didn't score. So yeah, it was really tight. Um, it, I was going to mention that it, it's um, it's one of those things. It's the biggest upset in the history of the NRLW and their story now to make the grand final being winless a week before the finals, it's going to be the best story for a while. But having watched them play in Newcastle, I remember thinking once I saw where they were on the table, I was like, I, I don't think they're that bad. Like, I, I don't, I was surprised to where they were coming. I remember watching them and thinking they're pretty good. They were giving Newcastle a lot of trouble. I was like, Oh, if they're coming last, Newcastle, might be in a bit of trouble against the top sides because <laughs> they didn't look that bad, you know? So I hadn't seen much footy then. And they, um. so, uh, you know, I, I think that they, it was one of those things in a short season, they probably had a couple of losses, but they're probably not as bad as everyone thinks. And East probably looked at that where they were in the table and how their season had been and were just off that bit. And it was enough, but I, I've got a confession. I didn't watch it. I watched the Knights game and I watched that with my wife and I said afterwards, oh yeah, the Knights are playing the, the Roosters next week so we are undefeated. <laughs> That's how confident I was. I was like, they'll be playing the Roosters next week and explained that the Roosters were undefeated, but that Newcastle were beating them with five minutes that Newcastle had been down 12-0 against East, come back to 16-12, and that um, Kelly, Isabel Kelly, like the best player in the women's game, had scored like a long distance try to beat them right at the bell. So I was like, oh, it should be a really good game. And, you know, because they had a really good match already this season, um, but it'll be tough. And I was just explaining it all. It never occurred to me that Parramatta would win. Um, That's how confident I was. I didn't put it on and I was just explaining who they were playing next week. That's the level of upset. Yeah, it's and, incredible. And the the other, history,
1: <laughs> other history for this too, when you mention the history, is that it's, it's potential for the first time ever for one club to win the NRLW and the NRL, mm. uh, which is which is a massive achievement if that can happen. And, and I dare say, like, you know, people will look at the NRLW not being around for that long, but we could go another 15, 20 years and that that the team not even ever be in that position, um, especially with the growth and more teams being added next year and the year after. So, mm. yeah, I will, one little... Um, get the management of the NRLW, I guess is. I think the Parramatta doing this does highlight um, a little bit of poor management because it does show, you know, having a five-game season it just isn't long enough at this point. It needs to be longer. And someone like the Eels, you're right, they, they're not as bad as as finishing last, but they could have finished with no wins and been last on the table. Yeah, you know, and if that happened, it would only be because they only had five games. And you can see that they're, you know, game four and five, they're starting to peak. And then game six in the finals, they've obviously peaked because they beat the roosters pretty convincingly. You know, this is this is why you need longer seasons. Mm. It's why you need 10 or 12 games, because you've got to give a fair indication of each team's performance and ability. And sometimes teams just start off a bit harder than others, especially when you haven't been in the NRLW as long, like the Parramatta Eels. Yeah, you know, it, it can just take a little bit longer. And I think that the in fairness if you've got a longer season, it's a lot fairer on those teams like the Eels because they could very well, you know, 12-round season end up finishing first, and rightly so, just by playing the same football that we've seen from them now. But they mm. didn't get that opportunity. And likewise, you know, the, the glamour clubs like the Roosters and, and this year the Knights, they might have gotten more accolades than what they deserved just because they did have a good start to the season and the season was only five rounds. So really this year, the, I didn't see any reason why it couldn't be expanded to at least, you know, something like 10 games. Um, And I I think that the performances and the upsets that we see, it kind of shows that inconsistency in the performances that, you know, you need those longer seasons too.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, Cronulla, when they won the men's comp, lost their first four or five games, might've been four. So, as a guide they would have come last in the NRLW most likely and they won the NRL comp but just as an example that you can have a bad run of games as a good team to start a year so um absolutely I, I think I'll, I won't defend them hugely I'll just say that I have liked the slowly slowly approach because I think um watching some of the results you've got in the AFLW oh don't bring it um, up please yeah I'll, I'll keep it really brief 99 get, to 1 I think yeah, yeah stuff like that like I, I, I just think that if you just try and I'm not saying you're wrong at all, I actually agree, but I don't mind them erring on the side of caution at all possible points because mm. um, when depth isn't there and things like that... you. The, the slow build um, and having a product that makes people think that was good is, a, is going to grow. I think help you grow the games moving forward. So I actually do agree with you. I think it's too short, and I think the final series is really unfair because it, it, there's really no advantage to finishing first or second, oh, exactly, um, yeah. like at all. Like the roosters, like they, they played it, do it like they may as well have finished fourth and they would have got played the same their worst game. game of the season,
1: and, and yeah. And WR. It, it,
0: yeah and it doesn't make any difference so I actually do agree with you but I do like while some people won't like it and will think it's a bit disrespectful to have it so short and uh, and everything I don't mind them erring on the side of caution to grow it slowly so that that depth does get there and I think it will over time and I think it's a really good thing and but I agree I would expand the season if it was me I'd like to see them play you know now that we're not having these two seasons in one for the COVID stuff like I would think that you might start them halfway through next year and run it all the way through to the grand final. That's that would seem sensible to me, right? Like run it from yeah yeah, that mid year mark and run it along the men's for the rest of the year. And Not and enough. with a view to getting bigger over time when you can, when it's ready.
1: Yeah, look, I think that around the 10-game 10, 10 mark works mm. and then having a final series go for a week longer. You know, I, I think that that works. Um, and, and, that's and it achieved. also helped
0: with that suspension stuff, right? Like you got this, mm. um, we had the off-field one this year, but it's the same with high tackles and everything else. The five-game season makes suspending people farcical because you almost have to commit a 10-week offence to miss a game. But it's unfair <laughs> to make that when you make them miss a game in a six-game season, it, it's too much for a yep. lot of the offences. But not making them miss a game is farcical for like, for, for if, if they are clocking someone in the head or they do do something wrong on or off the field, it's, it, that creates a problem too, right? Like it just seems you can't get that balance mm-hmm. in to a lot of things over that length of a season. So The balance I, I is agree. out in, yeah. in
1: a lot of ways. And like, I, yeah. I actually agree. And I've been a big proponent and defender of the NRL going slow. And particularly yeah. uh last year, we had a big podcast on it and um in the off season as well, where I said, you know, it's, People are getting way out of hand trying to call for teams, all these extra teams and stuff mm. the last couple of years, because it, it just could not happen, not with the depth of talent and the progress that you want to make. Because you know, I've shown the AFL is a big example every time for a few years now. You don't want to do it's a blueprint of how you don't do it. Because when you do what the AFL's done, you can't pull back. You've actually burnt your product. Yeah. And and that's a league that could end up dead soon. You know, it's happened with women's basketball. The WNBA is going now. And it's it's been going for 25 odd years. It hasn't made a profit in 25 years. It's been propped up by the NBA for 25 years. And there's two failed attempts at professional women's leagues before the WNBA came into basketball in America. You know, mm. that's what happens. Those two earlier leagues got burnt, And even the third one hasn't been done that great. So it's never made money in a quarter of a century. You know, you can't do that. And it's what the AFL has done. So I, I liked limited yeah. teams and doing it slowly. I just would have done it a little bit quicker and at least playing more games and stuff. But look, we've got a cracker grand yeah. final series for both NRL and NRLW. Before we get into it, I do need to mention fantastic sponsor of the All-Stars podcasting, Top Sport. Uh, TopSport.com.au. You can go on there today and create an account. Use promo code SCALLSTARS from this podcast and you'll get, well, they'll know you're one of our listeners. So you'll get taken care of really well by a bookie that is 100% Australian owned and 100% Australian based as well. But if you haven't look at odds, you know NRLW Grand Final $1.45 for the Knights. I am not seeing them that good on any other bookie. I reckon that's a fantastic bet. But on the Panthers versus Eels in the NRL, three dollars twenty five plus eight and a half points at a dollar ninety for the Eels. You're talking about good odds. That is a you. There is not, and I had not look at. Seven other bookmakers in Australia. I did not see anyone with as good odds for Parramatta at $3.25 as what Topsport have. So, topsport.com.au, go jump on there today. Your promo code to create your account is SC All Stars. Have a big grand final weekend. Luke, these grand finals. Mm-hmm. Now, Parramatta are staunch outsiders. Quick predictions for each of these. For Paramount versus Penneth Panthers, um, I Actually, think the Parramatta has the pack and the spine to be able to trouble the Panthers. I think three dollars twenty-five is way too much on the bookies. I'm actually, uh, look, I think the Panthers probably deserve to win and they probably can win. Um, and you know, they probably can win. That sounds terrible. They probably there's a good chance of Panthers win this. But I'm actually going to bank on the good Parramatta turning up, and I reckon plus eight and a half and a dollar ninety is good points. And I'm even going to say, you know, if putting a gun to my head. I'm actually going to back Parramatta up. I'm going to go Parramatta win, Mike Acevo first try, and Clint Gutherson for the Clive Churchill.
0: Oh, God, if Gutho gets the Churchill. <laughs> I dad. threw that in mainly oh, for you. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have a bad year. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think Penrith, Penrith have been the best team all year. That, that's not how the comps decided. I said at the start of the finals that Parramatta were the only team I could see beating Penrith. So aside from my own humiliation on here, I am pleased that this is the grand final we've got. I just don't think anyone else was going to beat him, um, And I thought someone else would knock Parra out. So we've got the grand final I would want. Um, I, I think Penrith will win. I think Parramatta are perfectly capable of winning. And I've got a feeling that it won't be. I, I think we'll get a good grand final. I think with 20 minutes to go, it won't be over, which is what you want, right? You want to get to that last yeah. 15 or 20 and have a game. I, I think the game will be on. I think Nathan Cleary's form in the last half an hour of games – the last few games has been incredible, and that might be the difference, is I've noticed he's got that wonderful Thurston and Johns thing going of being quiet in the first half and starting to get more and more rampant the longer the game goes. So that could make a big difference, but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be that surprised if Parramatta beat them. They've got the team that troubles them. They won't – Penrith like to bully teams, and they won't get bullied, and I think it'll be game on with 20 to go.
1: I think it's a, I think it's a really good game of footy, yeah, and I, like, awesome. I think that both of these teams deserve to be in the grand final. I think that we got yeah. a good grand final, and I think both these teams deserve it. And I think it's going to be an absolute cracker. I really do. I'm really looking forward to this one, yeah. um, and I, I really just have a feeling about Parramatta. I, I just have a feeling, and it's, you know, let me give you some stats here. The Panthers, Panthers lost four regular season games. Two of those were to Parramatta. Mm. Uh, my best stat, okay, in 1986 the highest grossing film was Top Gun and that's when Parramatta last won. In 2022, highest grossing film is Top Gun Maverick. So there you go. Uh, Another one. 1986, Brett Kenny was 5'8 and scored 11 tries for the Parramatta Eels to win the Premiership in 86. Dylan Brown's playing 5'8, 11 tries this year. The same as Brett Kenny when they won. Um, (laughs) And the last one, 86, the Eels lost eight games during the regular season and went on to win the Premiership. This year... Eels lost eight games. They're going on to win the premiership. You (laughs) sold me.
0: No, it's, I could see it. I, I could see it. Um, it's really I, the top the Top Gun stat that got me. The Top Gun the line. stat gets me. Can I ask you one stat that they've they've lost four regular season games and two at a Parramatta or whatever it is? Just remind me what happened in the two finals. Penrith played them in, though. Uh, Mitchell <laughs> Moses
1: went out and uh, Jake <laughs> uh, Arthur came in, and that's not all last. All I'm gonna not say. last year they didn't.
0: The, Penrith, Penrith <laughs> have only beaten them in finals, pretty much. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think I'm excited. I think it'll be a great. Game, I could see Parramatta winning it. I didn't know the Top Gun stat. I think it's very concerning that that Top Gun movie is the highest-grossing movie this year. But that's uh, for another podcast. But um, <laughs> it, it's yeah, I, I can't wait. I think, and it's the right style, right? We've got two really big packs going at it. That's going to be awesome. They don't like each other. There's players, you know, that have fallen out. There's ex-players in Parramatta team that don't like the Penrith players? It is all came okay Penrith. Yeah, yeah, that's true as well. And and we've got two really good halfbacks. It's always good when you get two sort of rival halfbacks going and stuff. It's all set up to be a great grand final. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome.
1: Both teams are like teams that I love to watch and they've got some star-studded lineups. So mm-hmm. I really am looking forward to these guys going against each other. In the NRLW, now your Knights versus the Parramatta Eels world beaters. Um, I have to mm-hmm. say... I think it's all Knights. Oh, I really do. I think they're actually going to win easily. I think the Eels should be very proud, even if they get done by 30 in this, be very proud of getting there. But I think that they played their grand final against the Roosters, uh, I think the Knights, I think Upton um, and Dib and Southwell, those type of stars that the Knights have had all year, they're going to all fire. But, you know, Parramatta's got a pretty physical girls' pack. Mm. I, I, I quite like them. So I'm interested to see how like Johnson and, and, and um, Millie Boyle go because they're the two... Dalian props of the year and uh, going against these big Parramatta girls. Um, I'm interested because that might go a long way to giving Parramatta a chance if they can contain some of those forwards, getting those massive metres and massive runs.
0: Yes, that that's going to be the challenge. When they played last time, Parramatta dominated the metres gained. Um, Millie didn't have a particularly good game. Uh, Parramatta dominated that thing and Newcastle was saved by class. It was one of those, um, a little bit, you know, like when you watch South losing a game and Walker and Luttrell or something, just get them out of it. And, you know, Melbourne Munster just does something, but they, when they're sort of behind the other side, it was a bit like that. Parramatta were dominating the play, but you would just get Dib or Upton just do something out of the blue against the runner play to make a great play to get us downfield, and then we'd score, and they'd rescue it. So if we get equal possession and Millie and Caitlin hold the middle, we should win fairly comfortably. Um, if Parramatta do what they did last time and 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 dominate that middle, which they have shown they can do, I think we'll get a good game and it'll be close because Newcastle are always in it with those class players, um, and they'll be hard to keep out. But I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it's close. Parramatta—they've got a really physical team. They really dominated that that middle that they. they Right on top of the Knights at home. They really kind of emphasize how much they dominated the middle of the field in that game and they had a good one of their wingers, was very strong, two out of trouble. It makes a yeah, a, a kicking could be the difference as well. Dib is an outstanding kicker. So I'm going to tip Newcastle, but I think it'll be closer than you do.
1: Fair enough. Well, we need to move on. Last couple of topics. Um, Daly M, real quick one. Nico Hines, um, can I just say, like, if you look at the leaderboard, Mm-hmm. Uh, um, after, you know, for the for round 12, we had Nico Hines in third at 16 points. Um, James Tedesco was in six and Ben Hunt was first, two points clear of, of Isaiah Yao and three points clear of Nico Hines. Now, how it obviously ended up is um, we had Nico Hines winning in absolute canter, you know, 38 points. That's the most scored by any Dallium winner in the Dallium's history. And we also had James Tedesco on 33 points as the runner-up. That's a big gap. Five points is a really big gap for a M win. But also, eight out of the last 10 Ms, if Tedesco scored 33 points, he would have actually won with that poll. So Mm -hmm. that tells you what a a quality season that these guys had. Ben Hunt on 32 points, only one point behind, and a lot of people thought he could have taken it away, but obviously he's fallen off in the second half of the season. Uh, I thought it was very deserved by Nico, though, and I think that he's a great young man as well, and he's just a really good example for the NRL um, in every way, shape, or form. So I was really happy for him. And I was also really happy, actually, to see Tedesco and Hunt a, a second and third, because I think both of them had really good years, but they're much maligned players for different reasons. This year, I think a lot of people wrote off Teddy a little bit. Certainly the first half of the year, I thought people didn't think that he was up to scratch. Um, and the last couple of years, a lot of people have been ready to anoint other players well ahead of him, whether that's Pappenhausen coming through, whether that was Turbo with his massive year the other year, or whether it was even this year with Latrell Mitchell having a blind a couple of months, you know, but t- Teddy's always been the constant there at number one. And he was very close to taking out another M award, which would have been huge, if not for a stellar 38 points polled by Nico Hines.
0: Yeah, uh, Nico's a win for the good guys. I don't think anyone can begrudge that. Um, Tedesco's year's a bit underrated. It's as good as the year is, he's had. I think he's playing as well at the moment as he did when they won the back-to-back comps. Um, but his team's less good, so he's not getting quite the raps. Uh, but I think he's playing as well, if not better, to be honest. I think he carries them more than he did then. At that point, as good as he was, he was a bit more of a cog, like a very an outstanding player amongst a couple of other outstanding players, whereas now he's the clear barometer of that team that he carries them a lot of the time. Um, So he had an outstanding season. Um, I would like to see Hunt win one, um, but yeah, it's one of those things like, I don't even know if Hunt dropped off that much, but if you just don't win enough games, you don't get a lot of threes and the dragons just weren't winning games. Right. It's just hard to to pull three and twos. If you don't win half your games Um, and Nico, Nico deserves it. Um, I think he'd have won it anyway. There's always a bit of a flaw in this is if you're the star player without in a, if you're the obvious star player in your team, it can, help a bit, Um, you know, if you look at his spine, every time they win, Will Kennedy's there and they had a few filling in at fullback. Then they have Moyland and they have Braley. So he's always going to poll when he plays seven out of 10. Um, He gets his threes, but he gets two or one when they win because there's not another star player to give it to. The obvious example, that is Danny Bedaris won it the year Andrew Johns was out and he never got close any other year. So it's, it was like every time Newcastle won, you were like, oh, well, Badaris gets a couple. And and that's always the problem I have with how it's done. But uh, Nico is a deserved winner. It's uh, He'd have won it anyway, I think. Um, and I've got no complaints.
1: <laughs> yeah, none at all. Um, and when we're looking at the team of the year, it's um, it's quite interesting. I think, I think most people that deserve to be there are there. Um, mm. One of the big things was... I saw some people comment and I thought the same thing. They, they showed the team in the year before they actually did the Dalli M and I understand sort of why they do that. But when you see that Nico Hines is halfback and not Ben Hunt, it kind of gives a few things away.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so that's a bit silly. But um, interesting that, you know, Ali got the wing spot. Um, he had a good year. Even as a Ruses fan, I probably wouldn't wouldn't have put him there ahead of some others, but I know it's on Deli M points scored. Um, and the other one that, I, yeah, probably the only other couple was in the prop categories. You know, Tapani. Number one, um, Peyton Huss, I made the comment, I think, and he's starting, unfortunately, to get away with things just on reputation. I thought that he had quite a poor year. Even defensively, he led in some really bad tries, and I, I didn't think he was anywhere near um, being up there for that. In the back row, you know, Kikou had a really good first half of the year, sure. Nanai had really, really good year for rookie and deservedly won rookie of the year, but um, we just spoke about how glowingly we love Sean Lane this year. And he he wasn't featured anywhere. And I think that he suffers on not getting enough love on the Daly Endpoints polling. So uh, a couple of, uh, I guess, shocks there for me. Uh, But overall, you know, it's hard hard to argue with the team. And I think that Todd Payton was a pretty easy coach of the year to give it to as well.
0: Yeah, uh, most of it's pretty good. Has no way. Um, I don't understand. Like, I I can't point to what games he would poll in, but I think that him and Kikau and Nanai come down to a bit of the same thing. I'm fine with Kikau and Nanai, by the way, but the thing that comes down to those three is that forwards to poll, you um, you don't poll anything for being seven or eight out of 10 every week, um, if you know what I mean. Like, being a good hard forward that has a seven or eight out of 10 game every week doesn't get you three two ones you have to be outstanding to pull as a forward so a lot of the times forwards get in here by having barnstorming if you have a barnstorming game once a month and get two or three points for it because it's eye-catching you know like a David for feeder or kick out style guy who can score a double and throw three guys off you get a couple of twos and threes throughout the year and the guys who are seven or eight out of ten every week and have had a really good tough hard season have polled nothing every week because it always goes to the super you know someone who does something eye-catching so that I'm not surprised that and that's the sort of player who gets second rower of the year you don't get a lot of like a Sean Fenson getting second rower of the year because he's just good all the time you know what I mean um and and that can you know like even like a Boyd Cordner probably never polled the points he should poll because you don't say oh Boyd Cordner was just rampant today you're just like oh Boyd Cordner was awesome every week and it was tough and hard, but there wasn't this moment that gets you a two or a three points um, because there'd always be someone that did something, you know, crazy good in that game, like some wow moment by two of us a check or something to get a three or two. Um, so I'm not surprised. And that's probably why Haas got it as well, is that if you look at the other props around the league, Fisher-Harris probably barely polled all year, right? But he was in the best six players on the field a lot more times than Haas was. Mm. but he probably never had a barnstorming game with a duck two tries or something in three line breaks. And I'm sure Hass probably did that a couple of times during the year because he's that sort of guy.
1: So do you think that mm. the yeah, the team of the year needs to be rejigged? Because I do. I actually think that it's unfair to look at it on Daly and perspective for the reasons that you, you give, including mm. that last one with Fisher-Harris in particular, because in that Penrith side, it's always going to be the stars like in the outside backs like Cleary and so forth that are going to pull points. He's never going to. Um, but... It, it sort of is almost a point where do you just look at for that, um, you know, for that position who, who we think is the best player and, and just award that to them rather than just worrying about the m yeah. points. Like it's almost like you just, the m points are for the m award. I and know the, what you mean. The team of the year, you just, you look at it differently because this is what happens, right? Like, you yeah. know, I love Sualee as well, but he, I don't think that he was one of the two best wingers all year. Um, and you know likewise Payton Haas has been before but I, I don't think he was this year but it was also a team like the Broncos who don't have a lot of stars so it's a lot easier for him to pull points and what it is a, a James Fisher Harris for example.
0: Yeah it's, ha- it's a hard one because if you do that the argument will reverse the other way as soon as we get the scenario I'm about to point out which is that the famous one was one year uh, when Ennis and uh, Farah were really dueling for New South Wales spot and um I remember Andrew Voss came out and said, what, what a better player Farrah was and all this sort of stuff. And Ennis got really uppity in the media about it. And they both went on the footy show uh, after Ennis got hooker of the year, Dally M hooker of the year. And he said, hey, Vossy, you know, what were you saying about me, you know, Farrah being better? And Vossi looked at him in the eye and said, yes, Mick, you got hooker of the year, but you got five Dally M points and Farrah got 16 this year. <laughs> like, like, I stand by it. And that, that's a true story. Like, Farrah once got 16 Dally M points and didn't get it and, and Ennis got five. Or something like, it was like a 10-point difference. So as soon as mm-hmm. you do what you're saying, people are going to drag the points poll out and point to something like that, and you're going to get really silly outliers and say, this guy pulled over 10 points higher and, and hasn't got it, and you put it back in the like I, I, I'll tell you an example. Dylan Edwards would have got fullback of the year if it wasn't on points this year, and then someone would have said it's tainted by the fact that Tedesco did what he did, and I know Edwards was close, so it's not as good an example as the Thorough one. But I guarantee you, Tedesco wouldn't have got it. They would have used the whip of the season to give it to Dylan Edwards. And I'm not against that. I, he had the best year in terms of playing better than he has before. But you know, it gets hard, doesn't it? Because immediately, because you love Teddy and he was great too, you'd be pointing out that he scored yeah. more Daly M points, and it becomes this really well, easy when, you're, to the runner up the it, when yeah. you're the runner-up. And when you're the
1: runner-up, it's pretty hard. So you're yeah. right; um, it, it, it is a tough difficult juggle
0: both ways. Yeah.
1: It is something they haven't really looked at rejigging for a long time, though, and it, it, it might be time just to have a bit of a look at it. Even just how they poll might be a, something to check out. But I don't want to get too much into that because it's going to no. be very controversial. It's a good I'd... team
0: overall, and the, the right person won the Deli M. I could have copped him, Hunter Tedesco. They're all good, worthy winners. So, and
1: that's probably the thing yeah. with the naysayers, and I, I am one of the naysayers, and that I agree with the naysayers that um, how they come up with the three, two, and one, and the points, and and, and the. Mm, Sometimes the people that are in you yeah. know, doing those matches and things yeah. you famously brought up many times that Brett Finch was doing Melbourne Storm matches a year after yeah. he's playing for them. Yeah, yeah. It, it hasn't been managed well by the NRL. But the good thing is that most of the time, I think we end up with a worthy winner. Um, so it all washes out at the end of the day. NRLW. Um, firstly Jesse Southwell from your Knights mm-hmm. ended up with uh, the rookie of the year, very well deserved, fantastic season. Uh, but we had McGregor. From my Roosters. Uh, Racine McGregor ended up coming to the Roosters last year. And this year, the 24 year old has been crowned the NRL W Daly M winner. Um, she had a really good season at half for the Roosters. So I was really happy for her. Just ahead of uh, Tamika Upton from your Knights, who has been fantastic this year, yeah. and also Aiken from the Broncos. So well, I thought it was really good. Three of the Roosters were in the top five. Mm. Number four and five were, were Bremner and Kelly, who both had good years. But um, yeah, look, obviously. I've two
0: games too, by the way. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I was going to say,
1: that makes it, yeah. Um, but I, I think, uh, firstly, congratulations to McGregor because she had a serious shoulder injury, came out of the Roosters last year and has come back flying this year and had a fantastic year. And for her to win it in a, a star-studded Roosters side makes it even harder too because you talk about the stealing mm. points and stuff. A short season where... Girls like Kelly and even Sergius who didn't poll in the top five and and also Bremner who did, who's a fantastic fullback. Yeah, she, she could have very easily just gone by the wayside and been a, a, a complimentary player to those other, other few stars, but she ends up mm. taking it out. So congratulations to McGregor. She deserved it very much so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah, it, it, it is. It's hard in those sorts of teams because if someone else, has two really good games, you just don't get the three points you need, right, to win it. You do have to be outstanding to get it in a strong team because you've got to poll every, you, you know, you've got guys stealing your points all the time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's go on to the last segment, and that is Legend Rewind. Uh, this, this one, I'll give some hints. It's not a New South Welshman, it's not a Queenslander, it's not an Australian player. It is one of the iconic trendsetters for New Zealand fans coming over to the NRL and watching, and that is Benji Marshall. Uh, absolute legendary Kiwi, um, but a legendary NRL player who had a phenomenal career. It is, uh, I think at this point, you know, Benji's only you know, a year retired, um, so we are doing this a bit early, but he's been, re- he's been in the game for 19 years, and there's almost... One of the greatest things that I love about Benji is that there's almost two Benji Marshall careers. There's the first half and the second half, and it's almost like two different Benji Marshalls. You'd be forgiven for thinking that there was two twins. But look, when you look at his awards and everything, um, you know, 58th of the year, um, International 58th of the year, 2009, 2011, Golden Boot Award in 2010, 5 58th of the year in the NRL in 2011. But he's another one of those ones who, his his awards and his accolades don't give way to how influential and how fantastic mm. he was. A lot of people know that he came from a touch background, but rarely did you ever see that pay off. especially when he came through, like he ended up playing 346 NRL games for a scrawny kid that came out and tried to play touch football in the NRL. And it was, it was just remarkable. And, but it was so exciting that it came off so often. He obviously had his lumps at the start of his career and had to wear it. Um, he had some shoulder reconstructions and some injuries. But it's still right from that first season. His step was electric and, you, and like one that you'd never seen before. It was like a, a skip, goose step, step. And then he had that speed. And then he got so much better as a ball player as well. Obviously, the the grand final in 2005, the famous flick pass that he did that was so audacious You'd never see guys do those type of plays in that type of moment very often. And he was doing that stuff in his rookie year. Um, 31 appearances for New Zealand with nine tries. Uh, And then he also had um, these World Cup matches on top of that for New Zealand as well. Uh, Obviously started off with the West Tigers with the bulk of his career and that was the first half, right? I mean, when you look at his career, he had like his first uh, eleven years with the Tigers, and then twelve years on, he has to move along. And people were talking about where he's going to go. And he went to the Dragons. Wayne Bennett pretty much reinvented him a little bit, um, and then had had a really underrated career in his second half because he had those three years at the Dragons, Luke. One year at the um, at, at Brisbane, went back to the Tigers, and then ended up finishing off with South Sydney, and. I don't even think that the South Sydney stuff, when he was a bench utility, I actually thought it was really positive for his career. And, you know, you see guys sort of decline, especially legends of the game, and you sort of, it doesn't go down well historically for them. Whereas Mm. for me, I think it adds to that Benji legendary status because he could no longer be the touch football player his last six or seven years of his career at all. And he was never a great half as far as game manager, kicker, and all that type of thing. But then all of a sudden, these last six years of Benji Marshall, he became a really good uh, game manager where his kicking game did the talking for him. His leadership did the talking for him. And defensively, he was about a million times percent better than what he was in his first five or six years at the Tigers. So I just think that guys that can change their game like that, that's the definition of a legendary player that was seen in the NRL for me. And it was probably, despite all the classy stuff that he did, despite all the exciting stuff with the flick passes and everything else, that was one of the things that was a standout for me.
0: Absolutely. Uh, there's a There's a humbleness to it that you don't see with people that were that big of a superstar very often. The fact that he was willing to change his game and to – play a role in teams and to accept a bench role and to accept being a foil and those things. There's a level of humility and humbleness to that, that we don't get in a lot of superstars and people like in, you know, it, we like that, right? Like it, it, he was willing to make those changes and not, he could have gone out just being the gunslinger. He started and getting worse and worse. And he was prepared to say, I can't do that anymore. And bet I can do this. Um, I, I think as good as the second half was, and I think it has become underrated. I, I think people are also letting the way it faded cloud that he is in the immortal conversation good for the first half of his career. Um, and I'll give you some, some reasons I think that um, very quickly is, well, first of all, it, if you want to say, oh, but he fell off, which a lot of people will, um, Brett Kenny and Peter Sterling, uh, halfway through their careers, never. Threatened to win a competition again, um, and Parramatta didn't have any success after uh, a couple of their Price and Cronin retired in '86. They, they dropped off pretty substantially at the end of the 80s and early 90s. It does happen, um, it's happened to other great players. Benji, people forget at the start of the year what bad, well, well, how good he was halfway through his career. Like if you go back to 2012, Um, And I have gone back to all the articles from that time before because I've covered this in one of my podcasts and the articles, the media, the captains of the All-Stars and all this stuff. He was the equal of Jonathan Thurston at that point. At the halfway point, they were considered to be equal in terms of their their standing in the game and the players' polls all had them equal as the best player in the world vying year for year and past that point. Thurston, yes, you have to take into account that he goes and wins a comp several years later, but at that halfway point, they're considered equals, Um, and that's how good he was, that he won a competition, he then, a couple. they had a few bad years where he did his shoulder, but when you look at 2010 and 2011, he comes third in 2010 and makes a prelim, um, and they come fourth in 2011, and in those years, they lost Chris Lawrence to injury they lost to Iaki in one of those years and they they really just had all these injury problems around him and he was carrying a pretty bad side the third and fourth and the top fours and deep in the finals that was the Tim Maltzen era the Robert Louis sort of era um, he He's had still him a really Darrow. young man
1: because he came through when he was in year 12 yeah, doing his HSC when he right. started. That's right.
0: So he was carrying really average sides to the top four and it's something I always take account of is that guys like Thurston, Johns and, and Marshalls and other ones that have carried weaker rosters. It's not just about accumulating six comps with a really strong players around you. You have to account for being able to drag guys up. But the, the one I would really like to highlight as to why I think he's in the immortal conversation and even if you disagree with that, why he should be celebrated absolutely emphatically is just let me run you through the history right now of the Rugby League World Cup. Um, the Rugby League World Cup was won by Great Britain in 1972. I'll ignore the comps before that. Between 1972 and 2021, um, which is upcoming next year now, sorry, because it's been played a year late, uh, there's only been one time Australia didn't win it. Australia has won it every other time um, since then, and the only time they didn't win it was in 2008. Um, Benji Marshall was the one who won that World Cup. Let me run you through. I won't do the whole teams. Let's just stick to the spine, okay? So he he won a final of a World Cup 34-20. to Australia ran out Billy Slater, a mortal conversation. They ran out Darren Lockyer at six, a mortal conversation. They ran out seven, Jonathan Thurston, Locked on to be an immortal one day, and they ran out Cameron Smith at nine, who it will absolutely be an immortal. So, there there may one day be three to four, they might all be immortalized. Seriously, that's how good that is. New Zealand spine, they ran out Lance Helheyer at fullback, Benji Marshall at halfback, Nathan Fien, uh, sorry, at halfback with Benji at five eight, and Thomas Lulawai at hooker. And he won a World Cup final, the only person that is probably, he might be the only person alive who's beaten Australia in, in a World Cup, honestly. I don't know if any of the players from the 70s are still here. Um, and, and that that sort of, that is an incredible achievement when you look at those spines. If you want to go to some of the other players in the Australian side, they've got Petro but they've got Paul Gallon, they've got Stuart, Inglis, Folau. It, it is just an incredible thing that is not spoken about enough. Um, and if that doesn't do it for you, the one of the, about, only other major tournaments, there's only been about three, I think, that Australia have lost in the last thirty years. Yep. One of the other two was the 2010 Four Nations, which they I was won about the final. To bring that up as well, yeah. 12 in the final, um, and the spines in that were quite similar. So Billy Slater and Darren Lockyer. This time, poor old Australia had Thurston out and had to use Cooper Cronk. That must have really hurt. <laughs> um, and Cameron Smith played hooker, so it, it's like you know. Um, incredible side. Then you go over to New Zealand. They played Hohair again, Marshall again, Fien again, Lulaway again, and they got over them again. So in a, in a couple of years stretch here, and I accept it didn't last for 15 years. I get that he wasn't at this level the whole time, but he was able to beat that Australian side twice in big tournaments in a three-year period and was, in my opinion, the best player in the world. And I get quite passionate about this because... I get it's one thing that annoys me on two fronts is that he doesn't get celebrated for that. No one talks about it. And that these Queensland players in those spines, everyone goes eight in, a row, yep. eight in a row and all this sort of stuff. Um, I'm not bagging them, but they are actually the only... When you look at the immortality of Cameron Smith, Darren Lockyer and Billy Slater and these guys, they're the only Australian team in history that didn't win the World Cup. And you want to immortalise all of them? Seriously. And And I'm not saying... They shouldn't be in the conversation everyone else in history loses games but if you want to celebrate queensland's origin run and immortalize them for winning origin have it how about you have a look about the whole lot of them combined with the best players from new south wales that whole queensland side and select cherry picking out the best new south wales players couldn't beat benji playing with fiend Lulawine and her higher in his spine that's how good he actually was and how influential he could be in big games at his peak and that that's huge right because how much do we hear about that Queensland team and what they oh, did at Red Bull? It is level? absolutely
1: massive. And it's one <laughs> and of those things them. that I love about Benji too, because mm. he was such a leader for New Zealand and he was so proud yeah. of representing his country. Yeah. And I think one of the it sort of bleeds into one of the other points that I'll make with him that I loved. The first half, you know, he's always been a bit of a heart on your sleeve and a bit of a um open talker as well. And yeah. the first half of the season, or first half of his career, I should say, it, it sort of came across a bit egotistical. You know, yeah. and there were sort of times where he did need to grow up a little bit. Um, there were sort of times where he did kick stones a little bit and whatever. He deserves props for how much he matured. First of all, in the, yeah. you know, because a lot of guys don't, especially football players that are that good that early, they don't mature. They don't get better than that, and you yeah. still have the trappings of the ego and and everything else. He learned, and that's great. But I also think, you know, as someone who was critical of him early on in his career for these type of attitudes that he displayed actually think that he was misunderstood a lot of the time too and it's now one of the things that I respect so much about him as a player because he was a hard on your sleeve guy that just cared so much like he'd almost been tears at times for the Tigers jersey he'd been tears for the for the New Zealand jersey when he put it on and if he didn't make those sides, he was upset about it and sometimes that would be misconstrued but it was just because he was so passionate and he loved it so much and If he didn't have that attitude for New Zealand in this instance, they don't win those games. And he is their emotional, mental, and also on-the-field leader in his play too. He he just leads them in every way. And it it is just such fantastic attributes to having a player that you very rarely see.
0: Oh, absolutely. I've still got the World Cup team up at the moment. In the centres that day, Inglis and Folau marked Mannering and Rapati just to go through those teams again, and they win 34-20. It it is unbelievable, and you're absolutely right. He was just incredible, and I suppose my last word on Benji is that I've had the immortal debate with a few people, and I accept if people don't want to put him there for, for the second half, I will wear that though I'll disagree, but I'll say one thing, and this is as big a compliment as you can give everyone. There may well have been some better players in the history of the game, not APES, but it, there may well be some guys who either had better careers or were better footballers. There is no one, literally no one ever that I have ever watched that was before my time that I've watched games of or in my whole time of watching while I've been alive that I would rather watch. If you said, like, we, you can get any player... Ever at their peak right now, and you're going to watch one of their best games tomorrow, and you're going to watch them at their best. There is no one I would rather watch play than Benji having his best game. He was the excitement and the way he played, and the way it looked. Remember when they used to be on on a Sunday Arvo and the Tigers are a bit mm-hmm. like that, and you go, Oh, it's the That's Channel a nice sunny go, day. How night, good is like this? Hard, yeah. yeah, it's sunny, and everyone was up, and you go, This will just be good. And they could come back from 30 nil down and win a game or, or the opposite and lose it. But there is no one ever that I that I would rather sit down and watch play their best game than him. And that's, I think, as big a compliment as you can give anyone.
1: It is. And <laughs> the Tigers could lose half their games that year and the Tigers fans would still be happy watching. And, yeah. you know. And But the other thing too is that he inspired a whole generation of kids. You know, There's so many players that are playing now that are playing for rugby league, let alone playing the way that they are because of watching mm-hmm. Benji when they were a child. And that is huge, you know, and he had his own style. He wasn't like anyone else. I wouldn't quite put him in the immortal category, um, but I'd have him a lot closer than what most people would. And I think that there's, you know, definitely worth the discussion for sure. Unfortunately for me, I have to say, I think if he quit after 14 years instead of playing 19, um, I think a lot of people would probably remember him a lot closer to the Jonathan Thurston's and so forth. Mm. Uh, He's almost penalised for having that longevity in his career that, really, he should be applauded for because he changed his game and, he, and mm. he was actually still very effective in doing it and had great games. And uh, unlike, you know, even if you compare to someone like Jonathan Thurston, Jonathan Thurston's last year in particular was quite poor. Um And I always thought that Benji kept bouncing back from whenever he was going downhill. He actually bat- bounced back or changed his game to be effective still. Yeah, so he And he probably gets... I think that's one of the things that kind of pulls him back in a lot of people's minds. And it is a question, you know, does he... Does he get remembered better and is he more in the discussion for Immortal status if he didn't play the extra five years?
0: Well, you're right. It's one thing that's always funny about this is because people look at longevity and obviously you can't just be good for one year and end up a, an all-time great of the game. But there's a balance too because everyone goes, oh, Cameron Smith was good for 20 seasons or this guy was good for this long. But in terms of peak, if you have a a grand final or a state of origin match or whatever it is, you, Queensland don't win. Like if say Cameron Smith is playing against uh, Wally Lewis or against Andrew Johns or against Benji Marshall, Queensland and and you get to pick them all playing their best game. Queensland don't win. You can't say oh Queensland will win because Cameron Smith was good for twenty years at their absolute peak when they're playing. Benji was as good as everyone does that make sense like he might not have done it for anywhere near as long He might have done it for half the time and that's a factor I get that but when you say who wins in at a game out of these guys all playing at their best it doesn't matter that Thurston or Smith were better for longer his top gear was as good as theirs this is what I'm getting at I suppose mm. and you know you know what I mean like it you don't just because someone did it for longer, it, yeah, we celebrate that, but that doesn't actually mean they were a better player, does it? Like Benji day, did it for you know? a very long period of time,
1: and one <laughs> yeah, of the it wasn't things a that, year;
0: it was you know, it was half yeah. a decade. <laughs> and one of the yeah. things we
1: do say about all the other players, and we've chatted about a number of mortals on this podcast, yeah. or, or people that should be, you know, I've been a very staunch mm. supporter of someone like Brad Fitler not getting discussed yeah. enough as an immortal. They've all got their own niche skills that you don't see from other players. Yeah, you know that they're, they're not quite a repetition of the greats of the past. They're their yeah. own type of legendary player. And, and Benji was 100% ticks that box, probably more than most of the guys that we yeah. say should be an Immortal. Yeah. He played his own type of game when he was at his best that, that nobody else could catch or emulate, but yeah. a lot of kids in parks tried to. Yeah. So, nobody
0: looked like that until he did it. You get the odd one trying now with, your, you know, you've had your Sean Johnsons and even a bit of Lua and some other guys, but before him, nobody did it. You're right. It influenced oh, you, the you whole You get your yeah. like French
1: touch footballers come in and just get yeah. belted and belted yeah. into submission and they just can't play. You know, Nobody
0: played that way until him.
1: Yeah, look, Benji Marshall. For me, he's the number one New Zealand player that's ever graced the NRL, and the number one New Zealand player of all time. Um, his career should be applauded a lot more than what it is. I'm not quite quite say he's an immortal, but I think that yeah. he should be discussed in pubs, in in NRL headquarters, in everywhere as a potential. Um, even if he doesn't make it, which I, I you know, it, there's a discussion to be had there for sure. Luke. Thank you very much for jumping on another episode of the All-Stars Podcast. This was an extra long one because it is grand final week. It is excited. Luke has several days off work to celebrate the grand final. (laughs) I do. (laughs) I do not, but you can hear more of Luke on the Rugby League Cemetery Podcast. Go and give it a listen. They look at old games. They review them. It's fantastic. If you love hearing some history of the game, whether you want to reminisce about games that you've seen in the 80s or the past or you haven't ever seen them before and you want to hear guys talk about it that know what they're talking about, Go to the Rugby League Cemetery, but Luke, been a joy having you on all year. Um, I'm sure we'll get you on in the preseason at some point as well, maybe even some super coach episodes, but thanks very much. Enjoy your long weekend, mate.
0: Cheers, mate. Loved it. Uh, go Penrith.
1: <laughs> thanks for tuning in, everyone. Uh, you can download or stream us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Audible, pretty much everywhere, and also jump on the sponsor of the All-Stars podcast, topsport.com.au. Use the promo code SC SCALLSTARS. We are going to be back with a talking Footy episode next week after this week's Grand Final. Good luck to the Penrith Panthers and the Parramatta Eels as well as the NRLW Parramatta Eels and Newcastle Knights. It is going to be an absolute cracker of a weekend. I can't wait to watch it. I can't wait to talk to it, all about it to all you great people and rugby league fans next week once again. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock
0: star. The show won't get paid.